0: Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. The Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security is one of the top global institutions working to prevent health disasters, both by shaping the development of new technologies and shaping government policy. As you'd expect, they've been working their asses off on COVID-19 lately, but they've also really been preparing for this moment for over 20 years. So I was excited to interview uh, Tara Kirksell, uh, who did her thesis on misinformation during disease outbreaks, and has worked at the Centre for over a decade since completing a very successful career on the US national swimming team. If you're as keen on the center's work as I am, uh, you'll be glad to know that as of a few weeks ago, you can directly donate to the Centre for Health Security uh, through the website for the effective altruism funds, uh, which plenty of you are already signed up to. The EA Fund site uh, also recently added the option to give to the Biosecurity Program, uh, the Nuclear Threat Initiative in Washington, D.C. The Effective Altruism Fund system uh, also supports donations to their four expert-advised funds uh, and direct donations to 28 other organizations that might be popular donation targets uh, for listeners to this show. Three projects on the list have actually uh, already been featured on previous episodes. Uh, there's the Alliance to Feed the Earth in Disasters, uh, also known as AllFed, uh, the Wild Animal Initiative, uh, and of course, GiveWell. It's operated by our fiscal sponsor, uh, the Centre for Effective Altruism. Uh, Note that two of the expert-advised funds uh, have made grants to 80,000 hours before. Naturally, uh, we'll link to the site in the show notes. All right. Uh, At the end of the show, I'll have a few random book recommendations for you all. Uh, So if you've enjoyed my past suggestions for things to uh, read and listen to, uh, stick around for that. But without further ado, here's Dr. Tara Kirksell. Today, I'm speaking with Tara Kirksell. Tara completed her PhD in public policy responses to emerging epidemics at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's now a senior scholar and assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, where her work focuses on public health policy in response to large-scale health events such as disease outbreaks, bioterrorism, or natural disasters. The Center for Health Security might well be familiar to listeners, as it received a major grant from the Open Philanthropy Project, in part to expand its work on global catastrophic biological risks, which we discussed with the Center's director, Tom Inglesby, back in episode 27. Among other things, Tara has studied communication in Ebola and Zika outbreaks and is a co-principal investigator for the Center's Disease Prediction Project, an online platform to collect forecasts about disease outbreaks and test their accuracy. She contributed to Public Health Principles for a phased reopening during COVID-19, Guidance for Governors, which came out just last week. She also happens to have won a silver medal at the Olympics swimming in the women's 4x100 meter medley relay. And most impressively of all, back in 2008, she was a contributor for Episode 18, Season 6 of the US version of What Not to Wear. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Tara.
1: Yeah, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: We were going to speak last month at EA Global San Francisco, but then suddenly somehow that got cancelled, I guess, along with uh, every other conference in the world. And I'm glad we can, we can now finally uh, have a chat about the uh, thing that caused our previous interview to, to, to get cancelled. Mm-hmm. But first, uh, our usual question, opening question is, uh, what are you doing and why do you think it's very important work? I guess I might be able to guess what you're working on at the moment, but it'd <laughs> be interesting to hear more.
1: Yes, it's definitely COVID-19 all the time. I, I guess I should start out and say that the Center for Health Security has really been following COVID-19 since the very beginning of the outbreak. I've been working on pandemic preparedness for about a decade. And so it's really crazy to me to think, hey, this issue that we sort of worked on and thought about as the future is out here and something we have to deal with now today and that everyone's talking about it. Everyone has opinion. My parents have an opinion they like to tell me all about. <laughs> And so, you know, it's it's strange. But I, I think, you know, working on these pandemic issues has now shown to be, you know, incredibly important. It affects our everyday lives. And, you know, hopefully that work will help us get through this or at least help us get ready for next time.
0: What are your, What are your parents' policy suggestions?
1: Well, at first it was really funny because they're older and I kept saying, really, you should stop going out. Stop going to the Fabric store, stop going to get groceries twice a day. And they were very resistant. And now they're completely flip-flopped and they don't think that anything should reopen for a really long time. And I mean, I'm glad that they're taking it seriously now. So I'm you know, that's good.
0: Yeah. I think I had a similar experience. My my mom's initial reaction was, ah, oh, just let it go through. It's gonna to be too much trouble to try to stop it. But uh, I think she's she's changed her mind since then. Yeah. Is, is CHS doing anything that's non-COVID related now or is it just kind of eaten up the whole organization at least for the next few months?
1: COVID-19 has really taken over everyone's lives right now. I think we've been trying to keep up our work on a couple other things, but I, I mean, you know, it's hard even to just read your emails yeah. um, at this point. So I, I have a couple projects. My misinformation project that I was doing for Ebola has, you know, it's been published now. And, and so we're kind of shifting that over to COVID. But, you know, at least we were able to finish that out So a few things that aren't COVID re- related, but not that many.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of COVID, let's start by talking about misinformation, which has been, I think, one of your main research interests. If I remember right, your, your PhD was about kind of media and policy interactions during Ebola mm-hmm. outbreaks yeah. in, in Africa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What has surprised you about kind of the, the nature or the extent of misinformation that's going around about COVID-19? Is it kind of more or less than you would think? Or like, is it about what you would have predicted?
1: So misinformation is something that we see all the time. And We've also seen these disinformation campaigns that have really started to move into public health. There was a paper in AJPH about Russian trolls and the vaccine debate. So I'm not surprised that we've seen this, this level of mis and disinformation in this outbreak. I'm glad that people are paying more attention to it. I think it is a huge opportunity to sow division in the American public and you know lead to a lot of lack of trust, which to me is really concerning. So I think you know the themes we saw for the Ebola outbreak, we see those exact same things now. You could almost just take the disease, take the disease name out and replace it, and you see many of those same themes. So you know that wasn't surprising, but the extent to which we're seeing it, I guess, is something that's new and interesting.
0: Yeah, so uh, you mentioned kind of active disinformation campaigns. I'm curious, yeah, what misinformation about diseases? where does it, does it typically come from actors who are trying to sow discord and uh, you know, coming up with clever disinformation to spread? Or is it just like people who don't have a clue about medicine (laughs) who say stupid things?
1: I think it's both. I mean, misinformation is when you you talk about something, it's not supported by the evidence, it causes people to have the wrong belief, but it might just be a mistake, right? Or the wrong interpretation. Disinformation is more purposeful. And, you know, that's That is definitely happening. I don't want anyone to be uncertain about that. Those things are definitely happening. And this is an opportunity for, you know, foreign actors to really cause problems in the U.S.
0: Yeah. How do you how do you measure the scale of disinformation? And is it possible to tell, I guess, Russia would be an obvious candidate to be doing that. But are there others as well?
1: I mean, I don't want to point fingers without evidence, but I think that, you know, there there are countries that have sophisticated abilities to do this type of thing. And so I think that it's more than just Russia. Yeah. Oh, you asked how to measure. Do you want me to talk about yeah, that? Or? Yeah, yeah.
0: How, how how do you how do you track it?
1: <laughs> yeah. So we tracked misinformation, and we didn't differentiate between disinformation in that case. But we tracked that tracked that in tweets about Ebola, and we found that about ten percent of tweets had either misinformation or were misinterpretations of true information. And so, you know, ten percent is it high? Is it low? I don't know. It you know, if ten percent of tweets out there are, are basically false, then maybe that's a problem. But it's not like taking over, you know, the communication landscape. Yeah.
0: I kinda of wish that only ten percent of tweets were false. I think <laughs> yeah. are the tweets that I, see, I think probably more than ten percent are not not that good. Yeah. My amateur impression is that there's like I suppose I don't don't live in the US, but at least it's in the UK, it seems like kind of most people are on board with the lockdown. Most people think that COVID-19 is a serious problem. I guess I wonder how much, how many practical challenges has this misinformation or disinformation actually created so far? And might we expect it to get worse as people get more sick of being confined to their homes and are open to alternative narratives?
1: Yeah, I do think that it's going to get a lot worse. I think that in the U.S., we're currently at risk of losing about half the population, the trust of half the population, and and the belief that, you know, these public health interventions are actually worthwhile. I mean, misinformation, the thing that it does, it makes you, you know, lose trust in authorities and you're not as willing to comply with some of these public health interventions that you don't really like. And so, you know, I think that there is a, a moving narrative now that this this isn't worth it. And so, you know, I, I am worried about the rhetoric that's kind of emerging. And and I think it's going to be a really tough couple of weeks, you know, coming up.
0: Yeah. To To what extent do you think people are mistrustful of authorities because they have actually just been wrong or slow to respond to this? So I guess it's like, oh, like authorities have changed their mind on masks. It seems like for a while they were saying, oh, there's not going to be a big problem, but then it turned out to be much worse. And so maybe people are kind of reacting saying, well, actually, perhaps the federal government or some of these agencies really aren't that trustworthy.
1: Yeah, well, uh, so I teach a risk communication class and I'll be honest, the federal government has broken pretty much every rule when it comes to risk communication. So they were slow, sometimes not credible, changing their minds, not consistent. You know, all the things that you kind of hope that, public communicators don't do was done in this outbreak. And so I think that people have have lost a lot of trust. But I think the thing that's really important is that, you know, we're all in this together. So if half the people don't really believe what's going on, that's a big problem, right? It's not just, you know, oh, you can do whatever you want over there. You know, I think that it's something that we should all care about.
0: Yeah, I saw uh, some, I think when you, when you were studying uh, Ebola, I saw some stat that I said 25% of people in, in the DRC think that Ebola isn't a real disease. How how big a problem is that for trying to control a pandemic over there? <laughs> Can they show us how big a problem it might be over here if people are not not bought into it's, it?
1: Yeah, it's it's a huge problem. So if you think, okay, you know, we have the perfect countermeasure, or you know, the like the right vaccine, the right treatment, we have the exact thing that p- we know exactly what people need to do, and they just need to do it right. And if you can't communicate and you can't get people to trust you that what you're talking about is actually real and what you're trying to tell them to do is actually useful, you might as well not have anything at all, right? It's not worth it. So you, it, that's such a critical component—that trust and and that communication.
0: Well, what are the people who don't think that Ebola is a real thing? I mean, have they not seen anyone have the disease? It seems like it be quite. It's quite a noticeable disease, right? <laughs> well, it's not. It seems like it would be hard right, to deny yeah, that it, it exists. Might,
1: right, it might be noticeable. You know, they might attribute it to other causes. You know, there's all these conspiracy theories that happen in every outbreak. So I don't know what specifically is what's happening there if they didn't see it. But in the U.S., you know, you're you're stuck in your house. Or other parts of the world for COVID nineteen, you're stuck in your house. You know, you might not see anyone getting it, and so it, you know, it seems very distant.
0: Yeah. Okay. You mentioned that some of the U.S. authorities hadn't really been following best practice in terms of communicating mm-hmm. about COVID nineteen. It seems like it would be a it's, it's a very hard challenge to communicate well to the public, who's a very diverse group, especially when you have lots of active groups out there trying to spread disinformation and trying to kind of take advantage of, of any mistakes that you make what can organizations do to protect themselves and do a good job in such a such an environment it seems pretty messed up
1: Right. It's always tough, especially, you know, when you say, okay, you have to communicate quickly and you have to also be right. And sometimes that's really hard to do together. Right. So, you know, the other thing you can do is say, you know, here's what we don't know. Here's what we're doing to find out that information. And here's how our plans might change if we, we found that information out. But I think the critical thing here is to be transparent and not try to spin, not try to spin anything, because I think people are smart enough to realize when you're spinning them. And so, you know, I don't never would recommend trying to cover anything up when it comes to communication
0: yeah what what kind of spin are you talking about are you thinking trying to explain that things are better than they actually are or trying to pretend that you know things that you don't
1: I think it's trying to pretend that things are better than they are or over reassuring that just down the road ends up biting you because you know the truth comes out and then it is worse than you said or whatever and I think that then people lose trust. They don't want to listen to you anymore.
0: Yeah, that seemed to be an issue early on. It Well, back in January, it seemed like the mainstream line among experts was, oh, don't worry about it. Not that many people have it. Like more people die of all of these other things, which seemed really misleading to me because obviously the concern wasn't that lots of people were dying of the disease You know, in, in late January. It was that many more people would get it in future. And so saying, oh, don't worry, don't panic just seemed like it was completely missing the point, <laughs> and then of course it was setting right. them, it was setting them up to have to do this this 180 a month or two later when it became much more common. You did, yeah, did right. you also think that it was a bit odd that people were trying to play it down so much early early on?
1: Oh yeah, I mean I think it was a huge. You know I was really concerned about trust even back you know early in in February when people were playing it down. How could anyone imagine that you've got it all over China and showing up in Europe that it wouldn't come to the U.S. that it wouldn't spread all over the world? That's just common sense, right? Right? I mean, no travel ban is really going to be able to actually prevent that. It was, you know, in the US already very early on. And so the idea that you didn't have to pay attention to it and it wouldn't actually spread seems to me crazy.
0: Yeah. But so it seems like it wasn't only you might understand politicians who don't know very much about diseases who are trying to just put a positive spin on things because that's the instinct that many politicians have, perhaps. But it seemed like it was people who are more informed, like epidemiologists or, you know, people who do actually understand diseases or medicine, who people were turning to for advice and they were saying, don't worry about it. What was going on in their, in their minds? Why did they think this was a good move?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I'm i not as familiar with everyone who was saying, don't worry about it, but I was in my little cocoon of people at the center who thought this was a big deal. So I yeah. don't know what was happening, honestly. I do think, though, that I think that there were people saying we shouldn't panic. And I certainly think that that is the correct message, that we should be thoughtful about how we move forward and that, you know, we need to collect this information so we can make the right moves. I don't think that was a problem. But, yeah, I I, I guess I wasn't that familiar with many people who were saying don't worry about this at all other than politicians.
0: I think my, part of what was going on was perhaps people wanted to promote this idea of don't panic because they were worried that the public would panic. And they felt that the way to do that was really to talk down the risk a lot. And then it kind of mm-hmm. got a bit out of control. But I'm not sure how big the risk of or it seems like what's ended up happening is much worse than the public panicking in January. We could have like done with a bit of a panic. That's like panic is really not that big deal. <laughs> or maybe, I just, haven't, maybe right. I just haven't seen what happens when the public really panics. but Because people panic later and it wasn't that bad.
1: Well, in the academic world, we try not to say that people will panic because people are acting in ways that are rational considering the information that they have most often, at least. I mean, a few times you can have instances of people not acting rationally. But for the most part, you know, if there are information voids or there's, you know, the sense that things are getting out of control, then people will act in more intense ways. And so, you know, that's what happened because people were, you know, over reassured and then had this sort of smack them in the face.
0: Yeah. You mentioned earlier that I guess one way for authorities to protect their credibility is to admit what they don't know. But I suppose there's kind of a difficult trade-off there because I suppose admitting what you don't know, maybe people, so that makes you some people trust you more because they're like, oh, they're being they're being sincere about what they don't know. And it makes it easier to then change it, well, to, to say something different later on because they say, well, we, we previously didn't know, now we do, and you're not doing a backflip. But I suppose saying that you just don't know lots of things might create this void where people then like start looking for alternative authorities because they're saying, well, if the CDC doesn't know all of these things, that's not very satisfying to me. I have to find someone else who's going to give me answers, like maybe false answers. But yeah, is there a difficult line to tread there, conceding what you don't know versus saying nothing?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it, it is difficult for anyone. But I think what you could say is here's, here's what we think right now but there's a lot of uncertainty about it and here's what we're doing to sort of re- reduce that uncertainty and so the answers may change. I think it's it part a lot of it's just framing and sort of admitting that maybe you're not an expert or you don't have that level of understanding. I think that's fine personally, but you know that's that's just my opinion.
0: Yeah. Are there any countries that have done a good job misinformation or communication wise?
1: I was really impressed with the prime minister of Singapore's sort of just the messages that he put out. They were like video messages and they were incredible when it comes to risk communication. They were sort of explaining everything I've said here on what you should do in risk communication and did a great job of foreshadowing how they might change things coming forward. So I was incredibly impressed by that.
0: Yeah, maybe we'll stick up some links to to those videos Sometimes when I was feeling anxious about the situation, I would go back to YouTube and rewatch some of the videos of him explaining what things are right. going on. Right. Just like, <laughs> yes, like a source of sent common sense and like calmness in the in right. the eye of the storm. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: Like, put it on my mental <laughs> exactly. health rotation. What should we think about misinformation that comes from government? Is that is that something that we should understand in the same way that we do other other misinformation? Or is that something that needs to kind of be studied in the, within a different framework?
1: Yeah, misinformation can come from governments. I'm not going to try to cover that one up. It certainly can happen. I think that you know it can. It's possible that people can sort of make mistakes, or that information can change over time. But you know, it can come from companies, people, governments, whatever. It can come from a variety of sources.
0: Do you have any view on what the internet company should do? I noticed that YouTube and Facebook and what well, actually, so many sites now they've got these banners at the top where they're trying to direct people towards authorities on coronavirus. Uh, which you know, I guess. Here, I guess, is the public health people in the UK, I suppose over there, they're linking maybe to the CDC. Is that a good step? Or do you think that people who kind of reject the mainstream narrative are just going to reject those pop-ups as well?
1: Well, I do think that those efforts are really valuable and the changes to the algorithms that they've made can make a big difference. But I agree that, you know, if you're someone who rejects mainstream science or the authorities, then that's not going to be helpful to you. And so I think this is where research comes in and trying to understand the best ways to access these populations who are sort of distrustful of authority. I think that the answer to the problem of misinformation isn't necessarily that the tech company should solve it all for us. Like, I certainly don't want Facebook to determine for me what's true or not. And so I think that, you know, there's a lot of stakeholders. and, And I think members of the public also have to take a hard look in the mirror and understand and figure out how we're sort of figuring out what information sources to trust. And I think that, you know, there's a whole lot of stakeholders who need
0: to think about it. Yeah. Have you seen this paper about, it's a little bit dark, but it's, I guess, differing mortality rates from COVID-19 in different districts of the US, depending on whether they watch Tucker Carlson, the Fox News host, more than they watch Sean Hannity?
1: I mean, I saw the abstract to that. I mean, I think it probably has to do with how quickly you were interested in social distancing, although it could also have to do with the demographics of. You know how old you are and and um, if you're able to social distance i don't know the demographics of those two shows yeah
0: uh, just just for listeners uh that was well they looked at different counties i think in the u.s seeing whether people watch the fox news show sean hannity or, or tucker carlson more tucker carlson spent most of february saying that covid 19 was going to be a massive problem sean hannity spent most of february saying that it wasn't going to be a problem at all and they noticed that places where people, people watch sean hannity more the, the fatality rates were higher or more people had died of the disease I suppose I've seen enough empirical social science to wonder <laughs> how good are the, how good are the <laughs> methods there. Like, if he you, if you went past the abstract, would it really hold up? But, I mean, if it's, if it's correct, it suggests that... It's, it's kind of startling. Do you think Sean Hannity, like, in a sense, people will have died, his viewers will have died, potentially, because he got this wrong. And I wonder how much people will feel that sense of responsibility in the media to get things correct.
1: I think the media should feel a responsibility to get things correct. But in this case, I don't think that that was right. And I think it was pretty bad. Yeah.
0: How can people well how can people figure out who to trust? I suppose especially if they want to just go beyond like, you know, the highly confirmed facts that the CDC is putting out and they want to like stay abreast of kind of cutting edge science in it. Yeah, what are indications that are hard to fake that something is actually credible?
1: So, you know, it's hard because if you're looking at preprints, you have to have sort of an understanding of how those methodologies work. And and if you're not in that field, it's hard. Even I'm in public health, but I mean I don't know how to parse exactly, you know, what to be worried about. In particular, in like a modeling study. So I think you know, trusted mediators are are definitely important there. You know, there can be some leading journalists who seem to have really gotten things right. But also, you know, I don't want to plug our stuff too much. But (laughs) I I don't have anything to do with the center, the CHS COVID newsletter. But I think it is excellent, and you know, I get a lot of information from that, and and try to follow a couple other you know news sources. But I, I, you know. I'm also just like run over with so much information. (laughs) I think that's a huge problem that's happening for everyone right now is that there's just too much to absorb. And so, you know, it's kind of, I think it's called data delusion. I just have a hard time even keeping up with my emails. So try to get what I can as the world is moving at lightning speed.
0: Yeah, I had that experience in late January, early February, I felt like I could kind of keep up with what was being learned about COVID-19. And then just in March, things snowballed so quickly. I I wasn't even able to keep up with the articles that people were literally emailing me. And so rather than, I guess, rather than just randomly start reading through them, I was just like, I give up. I can't, I can't keep track of this. I'm just going to like, stop trying to be at the cutting edge and just learn things a month late. And that's going to be fine. I mean, maybe that maybe that's a sensible approach unless because there's so much going on that really all you can do is specialize in some like narrow area and really understand that. And a lot of the rest of it is just kind of has to pass you by.
1: Yeah, I do think, you know, some things you are just going to have to say, you know, I'm going to delete that from my inbox. (laughs) But I think that. You know, I think one thing that's that can be really interesting now is that there is more information coming out about what's happening in localities and and what's happening on the ground. So, like my colleague Amish Adalja, he's a clinician. He also works at CHS, and so you know, I I really value his perspective because it's kind of you know first person. And I think the more that we're able to understand sort of what's happening in localities based on the information that's coming out of them, I think we'll have a better picture of what's happening rather than these large countrywide sort of models or whatever that I think don't have enough granularity to really tell us that much.
0: Yeah. I'll just plug, uh, I guess, Scott Gottlieb, who contributed to a paper that that came out last week about what governors should do. And Helen Branswell, who's a journalist at Stat Magazine. Actually, Stat Magazine as a whole has been pretty impressive, I think, in covering this. I guess it's like a kind of industry magazine for pharmaceutical companies or or for the medical industry. And I guess... It really does help when journalists have some expertise within the domain of which they're writing, which is not always the case. But it means that I think they've been able to cover stuff that other places have not been able to make sense of.
1: Yeah, she has been great. And then Scott is also, you know, he has has a very sensible voice. So I'm glad that he's been, you know, publishing and pushing things out.
0: Yeah. Are there any institutions in the US that have kind of overperformed how well they thought that they would go? And perhaps should they be given more authority to, to play a big role in future pandemics?
1: I was really impressed with the King County Public Health Department. The, the, they were the first to recognize it. I thought they were really on their game. I thought they were approaching some very sensible, you know, solutions, trying to think through things with the understanding of local conditions. So I was very impressed with them. I think that some states have also done a very good job. I think that when we talk about risk communication, I think that risk communication from Governor Cuomo has been excellent. And I also think that, you know, Governor Hogan in Maryland, where I live, he was on his game very quick. And I do think that that has been, um, you know, the states have shown leadership, whereas, you know, we had some disappointing efforts by the federal government.
0: Yeah. Do you think more power to respond to pandemics should be devolved down to the state level or I suppose, I don't know, more local levels in other countries as well? Or does that just create other problems?
1: Well, in the United States, it varies based on home rule versus Dillon's rule. Who has the power? Is it, is it to the locals or is it to the state? You know, I do think the states have done a good job and that the more local you can get, the more responsive you can be. But that spreads out sort of sort of response resources. And in some cases now we have states actually banding together to kind of, you know, put their resources together. In an ideal world, I think the CDC would be empowered to, you know, do the great work that we know that they've been capable of in the past Right now, they've been a little bit silenced. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's important to have a really strong federal public health agency. So kind of a, a middle of the road answer there, I guess. Yeah,
0: I guess I've, I've heard a lot of respect for the CDC in the past, but most people seem to have been disappointed with their response to, to this one. So did did they not have the right people? or were, Yeah, was it political interference in the CDC that made them hard to do their job?
1: Well, I feel the same and I don't really know exactly what has happened. You know, I used to work with a lot of people there and I still work with some of them. There has been over the past few years, you know, many people have retired, some people who I think had a lot of institutional knowledge and and a lot of capability to, you know, manage a pandemic. So I think that there has been a loss there. I don't know exactly what happened, and I don't know if we'll ever know, but certainly the efforts with regard to testing were pretty disappointing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of testing, do you have any view on the on the FDA and, and their performance? I've seen a lot of people who've been kind of angry with them for you know, seemingly holding up advances in testing or in other medical equipment that maybe we would like to roll out with a lower level of testing or like, you know, confirmation of how well it works and safety testing and so on because this is an emergency situation.
1: Yeah, I've seen that criticism as well. I think it's it's reasonable, that criticism. I don't get too involved in what's going on on FDA. It to me is sort of a, a black box. It's very <laughs> difficult to understand what's going on there.
0: Yeah, interesting. There's been some disappointing things in the, in the US. But if you look at the number of deaths across the country as a whole, the amount of contagion across the country as a whole, it actually doesn't seem to have done that much worse than many other countries, at least on a a per capita basis. It hasn't done well, but it's not not as if we can say, oh, this is all like the US federal government's fault. It's like other countries have often done similarly badly despite not having, you know, whatever the unique issues are with, with the United States. And so it seems to me like around the world, governments have been pretty slow to react to this, potentially being weeks behind where they could have been if they were very proactive. And I wonder... Yeah, what's the reason that governments tend to lag in their response? Why, why aren't they running ahead of it? I, so it's one thing is you have this kind of exponential growth where in order to get ahead of where the virus is, you have to like suddenly 10x your response one week to the next because it's amping up so fast. And maybe bureaucracies aren't designed to do that or people just don't want to believe that things are going to be so bad. But it seems like there's potentially quite deep-seated factors that cause things to happen too slow.
1: Mm-hmm. I think, you know, there's a number of things happening here. You know, one is that, you know, the reluctance to admit that something really bad is coming down the road. I think the other is I think that taking action has its own costs, right? You know, if we had started saying we're going to close all businesses and do all these things without, you know, our testing actually in place and we had zero, you know, very few cases, I think it would have been hard to justify that. Even though we know that there were cases all over, we just weren't testing very well. So, you know, it's a mix of things and certainly, you know. It was a difficult situation, but I think that it would have been better to have testing set up earlier so we knew what was going on earlier. We're not trying to sort of pop in in the middle of, you know, an epi curve and try to figure out where we are. You know, I think that would have made a big difference. And so I think that was part of the slow reaction. But I think another part was just reluctance to sort of do the things that were hard.
0: Yeah, I guess there's this interesting paradox that I suppose closing, so closing down the economy, it's very hard to get broad-based support for that until more people have died, until things are going worse. But of course, like by the time that's happening, then now you have to close down the economy for much longer to bring down the case numbers sufficiently. I suppose you can see the example of other countries going really badly, like in a a peculiar sense, like Italy was very helpful for the rest of the world because seeing the carnage there really prompted other people to say, oh, my God, we're going to be that in two or three weeks.
1: Yeah. So when Italy happened, I said, whoa, this is this is actually, you know, a country that has advanced medical care can't handle this. And, you know, we knew that it was going to be bad, but Italy, you know, it, it really showed how the case fatality rate changed when you didn't have appropriate medical care and you had an older population. And so I think Italy was a big wake-up call to say, you know, this isn't just, you know, oh, less than 1% case fatality. You know, this could be bad if you're not able to actually handle it with your health system. And that was sort of the wake-up call, I think, for everyone.
0: Yeah, it's this funny thing that I, I'm originally from Australia. Australia's actually done this quite well. It seems like they imposed lockdowns sufficiently early that they've managed to bring new case numbers down to really low levels already. But then it means that I'm hearing from people that. People are losing support for the lockdown or losing interest in it because not not enough people they know have died. <laughs> so it's slightly hard to maintain <laughs> yeah. interest in it because they've been so successful at stopping it. I suppose it's slightly nice that I suppose Sweden or there's some countries that are pursuing a slightly heterodox approach where they're potentially not going to have stay-at-home orders, and so we might see some more spread. Perhaps that will be an example to the rest of the world, depending on how it goes, showing like, well, this is what would have happened.
1: Yeah. So I think everyone's tired of being in their house. I'm tired of being in my house. <laughs> I'm tired of being in my house. <laughs> uh, I, so I think it's going to be very difficult to keep up this communication and, and asking people to keep doing these things that they're just, they just don't want to do anymore and that they're not seeing cases in people they know. And so I think that's going to be difficult. I don't know if people have to learn the hard way or if there are ways that we can sort of meet in the middle. I hope that that's the case. It certainly seems like, you know, these really thoughtful approaches that public health has sort of put forward as what the, you know, the gating criteria for moving forward for many states are not going to be met and people are just going to do it anyways. So, yeah. yeah.
0: Interesting. I suppose so. The point of the lockdown was to bring down case numbers, also to give us time to put in place ways of dealing with a, a renewed outbreak, like testing capacity or more hospital capacity. Do you think that time has been used well, given how expensive it was to buy each day of delay?
1: Absolutely not. Okay, uh, okay. I
0: <laughs> go, go on. <laughs> this sounds good. <laughs> well, it sounds terrible. Uh, I
1: have that is that is probably the thing that has been, I guess, most infuriating actually about this outbreak that. You know, we knew it was happening in China in January and nothing was done to sort of really actually make measurable changes on the ground in the U.S. to get ready for it. And then we had it happen in the U.S. and we all went into lockdown at, as you said, immense cost, you know, incredible cost to ourselves right now and to our kids in the future. I mean, this is going to be a big problem for a long time. And, you know, still, you know, for us, six weeks go by, and I don't see huge improvements in testing capacity, in the serology, in PPE, in hospitals, you know, in hospital capacity. Like, these things are just haven't happened. And that, you know, I was sort of wishing that we could have timelines where we say, this is what we're going to do by this date, and here's the person responsible, and we're going to, you know, take names until we get it done. You know, I would have liked to see a little bit more urgency in you know saying each day is a livelihood and many livelihoods in fact and each day is critical that we you know push our opening forward one day in a responsible way and I just don't think that has happened
0: yeah what do you think has been stopping it? I suppose I feel sympathetic to the people trying to do this response really quickly because they may just not have very much experience in the area, and there's lots of different groups are competing to get protective equipment, and maybe the the factory is already maxed out, and there's just only so much that the world can do. But it sounds like you think that we've underperformed what what is realistically possible.
1: You know, I think this is a hard problem, and you know, I have sympathy for that, but at the same time. So is, you know, how many millions of people we have employed, that's a big problem. We have that life is this is a hard we have many, many hard problems that we're dealing with here. And so I just think, you know, we went to the moon, <laughs> we built a na- uh, we built a nuclear bomb. Like that's a hard problem. Oh, make some masks. Let's let's, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. are there any specific suggestions of stuff that you think should have been funded? Maybe that that wasn't funded or, you know, maybe regulations that should have been loosened to make things go more smoothly that that weren't loosened?
1: Yeah. So my public health hat on, I have to say, you know, local public health should be funded. You know, the funding for the, the FEP program, the public health emergency preparedness program has really declined in the past decade. Same with the hospital preparedness program. These funding lines are critical and they've really lost a lot. So, you know, that's one thing. The other thing is investing in technologies. And I think that, you know, we do need to th- be able to think outside the box and sort of move, move a number of different technologies forward. I think this is something that the EA community can really sort of help everyone get their arms around what kind of new things that we should be looking at. How do we change the game?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And I suppose I'm, I'm very optimistic about how things are going to go in Australia because they managed to bring down the case numbers to a pretty low level. And in the meantime, their testing capacity has gone up quite a bit. So now like the number of tests they can run per number of case that they expect, at least over the next few months, is pretty good, such that they can do a lot of testing and tracing and probably keep it under, under control for quite a while. I guess, yeah. Is it realistic that other countries could have done this as well if they'd had, I suppose, similar capability to, to expand their response? To, yeah, their ability to, to respond whenever the, the stay-at-home orders end?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it looks like South Korea has done a really excellent job. They do a great job contact tracing and they've had incredible levels of testing, uh, they had a trial run with MERS. So, you know, obviously they were able to test out what they were doing and, and improve it and change some laws. And so I think that really did make a big difference. I think New Zealand and Iceland have also done good things. But, you know, let's also now think about the fact that three of these countries are island nations with, you know, moderate population sizes. So that makes it a little bit different. These countries have done a good job. And I, I think that, you know, the U.S. could emulate that a little bit.
0: Yeah. All right, let's move on and talk about the the public health principles for a phased reopening during COVID 19, Gardens for Governors, which CHS put out last week. Yeah, you you were one contributor to to that report. What was it trying to to say? And I guess what was its most valuable contribution in your view?
1: So I think this report was really trying to frame different types of business or or activities in a framework that was showing what the risks were as far as level of contact. So, was it close contact? how many contacts there were, and then also how modifiable those contacts are. And I don't think that there was really like specific go, no-go guidance on that. It was more, can we provide people with information that they can sort of take then to a larger stakeholder group and have that discussion about what's, what's worth it, right? There are different levels of risk. And sometimes you might take something that might be a little bit higher risk or you have a lot more uncertainty about, like schools. And you might say, it's worth it. But it's all in a mix. You know, it's not just public health who should be making this decision, right? It should be a mix of stakeholders who, you know, bring their expertise into the conversation as
0: well. Yeah. So, I guess I, I'd been looking for something like this and I hadn't seen a similar report until until this one came out. Maybe there was one out there that, that, that I'd missed. But I guess you're kind of trying to rate these different activities because it seems like, well, we've got this whole spectrum thinking as an economist. There's like activities that are the most, create the most disease transmission per like util that people derive, which is maybe, I don't know, a music festival or something where people are in enormously close contact that are probably not super essential that people do that. And so probably we're not going to have really crowded music festivals, not going to have a mosh pit for a little while. <laughs> but then there's like all the way down to things that we've already Closed, where they're quite important economically, like people's livelihoods are being destroyed because they're not happening. But the amount of transmission isn't that great. Like, say, going to a clothes shop that's not that busy, not that packed. I guess you're trying to draw out that spectrum and say, well, if you're going to open some things, well, here's some things that are more promising. Either where the number of people you're close to is not that large, or you don't spend that long around them, or you can kind of adapt, adapt the shop, say by saying, well, people got to keep their distance, and then you can reopen the, the clothing stores. So, so yeah, some of the interesting things were I guess shopping malls and retailers seem like they, they can reopen. I guess parks and it, actually non-contact sport was uh, one we were saying well people could probably pay tennis right, <laughs> so we could perhaps be a little bit creative.
1: Yeah, so I mean I pushed for that one because as a swimmer, <laughs> um, I was like there's not that much mixing that's going on when we're when we're swimming at the pool as long as we're not breathing all over each other at the end of the lane. You know, I think it's pretty clear that ventilation plays a really big role here. We've had some studies, I guess I saw a preprint just the the other day about, you know, the different outbreaks that they sort of tracked in China. And, you know, for the most part, those have really come from household transmission or from transmission in transportation. And so, you know, when people are in very brief contact outside, I just, you know, I don't see that as sort of a huge risk. And at this point, it would be ridiculous to think that we're trying to strive for zero risk right no one lives a zero risk lifestyle and so i think that we're just trying to reduce the level of risk of transmission here so you know we want we want to avoid close contact and we want you know not to be indoors and i think that businesses and people can really think through those you know requirements and make adjustments and that's what i think we should really be striving for here is that people can make these decisions based on the knowledge that they have about the disease rather than you know, these overall orders that sort of compel them to do something.
0: Yeah, I I guess, are you seeing a lot of people responding? I I guess I've seen a lot of businesses and offices thinking about how can we, because they want to reopen desperately. So they're thinking, how can we reopen the office in a way that isn't going to get our uh, employees killed? Maybe, you know, even in some ways, the government response has been a bit disappointing, but perhaps we could see quite a lot of individual responsiveness and flexibility that could allow things to return to some semblance of normality without the disease breaking out again.
1: Right. I, I do think that businesses have been very flexible and are trying to push for ways that they can do things safely and I think that's that's really great. You mentioned going back to the office I personally think that probably if you're able, if you're able to work from home that's one thing that I would say you should probably keep okay. doing yeah if you can't do that effectively
0: <laughs> yeah I guess maybe where, well in, in person things construction perhaps it's like warehouses and factories and all that oh, yeah also trying to figure out how they can how they can keep running. So, you said, well, we don't have much evidence of people catching it from strangers passing by them on the street or in parks or anything like that. It's mostly what in the house you're seeing and public transport are the two key mm-hmm. vectors. It makes me, yeah. makes me wonder then. A,
1: well, that's from the preprint. Okay,
0: right. <laughs> well, let's just take that as uh, as gospel. That makes me wonder. I mean, it, I've heard some people who have been a bit skeptical about the lockdown because they say, well, you're going to get so much transmission within the household because people are spending tons of time in close contact with their family and housemates then that given the enormous cost, maybe it's not actually going to do as much good as you think. Do you have any view on that?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think people are already in contact with their household, and so I, I mean, I'm not say I wouldn't say that that would be a reason to say no on on lockdowns, but I do think you know I'm not a, a fan of the, you know like I said the lockdown as a coercive sort of measure. I, I think that providing guidance and, and helping people understand what should really be done is, is much better. So you know the, the costs are immense though, and you know having people be thoughtful about you know their their contacts, I think is important. But, you know, even if the lockdown isn't happening, I'm still having my kids cough in my face. So uh, I don't know if that's a huge difference. I guess
0: part of the reasoning is that as long as you're with the same people in the same house every day, they can't infect you twice. So (laughs) either you get it or you don't (laughs) after a while.
1: (laughs) Right. Although we've been, you know, we were social distancing for like two weeks and somehow we caught like a tiny cough. I know, like my whole family, and I just—I've
0: been out in the country in this house for like five weeks, seeing practically nobody. And like last week, I got a cold. I'm like, wow, this is incredible. How how is this not enough? <laughs> You'd think at least if I'm yeah, meeting exactly. if I'm meeting nobody, at least I wouldn't get colds. But no, it's not even the case. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's been the response to the report? You mentioned in the notes that librarians weren't pleased by the suggestion that maybe libraries are a somewhat safe environment in which people to resume normal life.
1: Yeah, so I wasn't really involved in this this debate, although I heard from Caitlin, who is the main author of the report, that you know these librarians were saying, you know, we do have close contact with our customers or with people who are coming into the library. It's, you know, it's not just, you know, if you think of it from the perspective of someone who patronizes a library, then yeah, maybe you're not coming in contact. But if you think about a librarian, then they are. And I think actually that you know that's a fair criticism and also something that you could think about for every business, right? There's a lot of unique approaches to business and also varying types of contact occurring within those businesses. And so, you know, I think an overall judgment can be helpful, but at the end of the day, that's why we have one have stakeholders involved so that they can sort of articulate those differences and, and bring them up as, you know, important components of a decision making process.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is an interesting point that I suppose even in like a not crowded clothing store for someone just going there to buy something, it's probably a pretty safe trip. But then someone who's behind the counter all day, constantly being exposed to different customers, maybe the the risk really does right. add up and who's going to want to take those jobs?
1: Right. Well, I agree. But I think also I think people may be sort of the un- unemployment's pretty high. People need to make their rent. So, you know, then it's sort of a, you know, a situation where people sort of don't have a choice.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was a section in the report talking about the importance of kind of consulting with lots of people in the community before deciding what things to reopen. I suppose there's like a, there's a kind of an, an obvious case for that, which is you want to understand people's preferences about what to reopen and I guess get buy-in from the people who are going to actually have to do these things that you're asking them to do. But as I, I was reading it I was thinking it could just be that you know members of the community like uh, you know stakeholders in this decision perhaps don't have the expertise to really say what activities are risky and which ones aren't and they might, you know, pressure a politician or pressure officials to Reopen something that's very important to them, not realizing just how dangerous it is. <laughs> is there a case for, you know, talking like focusing more on people who have expertise in, you know, how dangerous the church is, how dangerous is swimming, rather than people who want to go back to swimming?
1: <laughs> yeah. So I think that that's a fair question. I would say though that. You know, decision makers need to sort of be able to understand that epidemiology and people who want to advocate for themselves should be able to do so. And then if the decision goes against them, they've at least been part of the conversation and had their considerations, you know, thought about. So I, I think, you know, it's not a problem to have people's voices, as, you know, as part of the conversation.
0: Yeah, I suppose as long as the politicians are also paying attention to the public health people, like they, it's a question of balance. And then, yeah, just got to make sure you don't listen to only one group. Right, right, right. Yeah, are there any things that you're worried will be open too soon?
1: I mean, yeah, there are things. I don't think that a close contact in bars is is probably a good idea. It's an indoor environment. There are a lot of people very close in bigger crowds. You know, I think, you know, Georgia's opening up soon. And so there are, I think they're opening up movie theaters. That seems at first kind of dangerous, but, you know, I think that there are ways you could modify it, right? If you had people sitting far apart. The same with the gyms, right? You know, there's a, there's a worry about, transfer via fomites, but I also think that there may be ways to modify the situation so that people are safe and that, you know, there are a lot of people who've been in their houses and, you know, we don't want to increase odds of all these other, disease, uh, you know, chronic diseases that can occur from sort of Not being exercising. very stationary.
0: Yeah. Right. I guess, yeah, coming into this, I would have thought, well, there'd be, there, w- there will have been lots of studies of where people catch colds or where people catch the flu. Like, is it at the gym? Is it at the pool? Is it at the church? Is it somewhere else? But it seems like we haven't really done those studies. Or Maybe I guess when I then think about, it, I think well, the way that you might study that is to create some new disease that's harmless and then give it to people and then see how <laughs> it spreads throughout the city and where people caught it. But that may not get past ethics approval. So perhaps this is a slightly harder thing to, to answer than, than what I thought. But is is it possible? Is is this kind of research that we desperately need to figure out where yeah, where do people get the flu the most?
1: It also varies by disease. Right. So then you're just not sure. Yeah. And then before it's it's expensive to sort of and hard to contact trace, especially if you have high levels of flu in the community. You know, how many cases of flu do you have and how many times are you exposed? I think it's pretty tough. You know, there have been studies to see like how long viable virus can be found on certain surfaces, but I'm not sure that those have sort of included infectious dose or, you know, that kind of thing or how it works actually in humidity and sunlight. So we're getting into an area that I don't know that much about, but I think that those types of things would be really helpful.
0: So it sounds like a lot of what we know kind of comes from the contact tracing early with diseases, where we find in almost all cases, we can track it to someone living with someone or being on public transport or, or something like that.
1: Right. Yeah. And so, you know, there may be a little bit of bias there because, you know, it's more obvious if you have caught it from your housemate or you know what was going on in public transport. But I think that that's what I saw on that. That I guess I'll caveat it again in that preprint. And then South Korea has also been keeping track of these things. You know, they had these outbreaks in these churches when there are close contact you're, you know, in close contact for a long time. You're indoors, so I think it's starting to become more and more clear. You know, there may be risks about spreading the disease in other situations, but that, you know, close contact indoors for a long period of time is really the the main way that that I think people are getting
0: this disease. Yeah, I guess that's actually a little bit hopeful in terms of maybe we can reopen a fair few things without letting our get too far above one. If you need close contact, right,
1: right. I think we have to be careful, but you know, it's possible.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's move on and talk about some other things that are being done at the Center of Health Security. You've been a leader on this collective uh, intelligence for disease prediction project. What is that, and how is it similar or different to kind of other forecasting platforms like Metaculus or, or the Good Judgment Project?
1: Yeah, so it is actually pretty similar. Crystal Watson and I had started and done a, a past sort of prediction project where we were actually doing a prediction market. But it's actually really hard to have people who aren't really that experienced and have a different sort of infectious disease day job to do commodities trading on an infectious disease outcome. And so we switched it to sort of a platform that does a lot of the work for them. And this was sort of different from the other platforms in that it was really just specific to infectious disease. It didn't have sort of there are other questions on those other platforms that are more general. And so we started that up about a year and a half ago with funding from Open Philanthropy and that was a year long project and we were just about to close down in December but we got additional funding from Founders Pledge and that let us you know keep on operating so we actually you know one of the goals at the beginning was to sort of establish this this platform and we would have the platform set up and we would have forecasters ready to go in case there was a Sort of pandemic, and here we were. We had it. We had it set <laughs> it's up. Lucky you we got that. Go. It's lucky you got that
0: in December. COVID was already spreading.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know, we were able to field uh, about a dozen or so more questions about COVID nineteen. It was actually really interesting because there was a lot of uncertainty. The forecasters didn't really have sort of a, a clear answer on some things, like what's the uh, case fatality rate going to be. But then, in other cases, they were very certain and. Um, it sort of shows how hard it is to write these questions because we would put these ranges of cases and, you know, immediately, you know, forecasters would go to the highest range and, you know, then, you know, cases were just, you know, exploding. And it was hard to tell, you know, are cases exploding or is our testing capacity exploding? You know, it, and so it was sort of, it did give us some some new answers there that, you know, this wasn't just going to sort of increase at a sort of moderate rate that we would sort of, you know, be able to sort go along with over time, it was going to be explosive.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So just to back up. So you set up this kind of platform where contributors could make forecasts about disease outbreaks and it'd been running for about a year. How many how many contributors did you, did you have? And did they have a lot of experience in the area?
1: We had various numbers of contributors over time, but we were over a thousand for people who signed up. Each question probably got between 60 and 150 forecasters working on it. And so they had varying degrees of expertise, but a lot of them were in the infectious disease world. We sent out some advertisements through Mail, and so got a lot of attention and interest from around the world. And so that was really something that we wanted to to have this varying experience, right? We didn't want everyone to come from the same viewpoint because we thought that we would have stronger forecasts if we had, you know, all these different sort of perspectives. And so, yeah, that's how we started out. We had a lot of different questions. We started out with other things like Ebola and cholera in Yemen. But, you know, at the end, it was really all COVID.
0: Yeah. And this was this wasn't a money one or anything like that. I guess were people doing it for bragging rights or just just to be helpful?
1: Yes. Yeah, so no, it was there were prizes. You were we're pretty sensitive to how it looks to have <laughs> people trading on death, basically. And I don't want anyone to ever, you know, have that that issue. And so there were prizes for people who were the most accurate, but we weren't, you know, we weren't doing you know, like the commodities trading and we just had a prize for one through five. And then we had a random draw based on how many points you had for the next 20. And so people you know, were incentivized to do well, but I, I was hoping to avoid sort of that unsavory look of having people trade on these bad outcomes. Yeah.
0: As an economist, my reaction is like, "What? You, you don't think life is precious enough to be worth trading in prediction markets?" It's <laughs> but I think that I think that may not be the typical <laughs> response that people have to people making money forecasting awful stuff. Okay, yeah. so how did how did they uh, perform?
1: Well, for the most part, they performed really well. But the thing that we learned is that it's not like magic, right? People need to have information to make good forecasts, and if they don't, or if the sort of surveillance information is bad or really biased then they don't make good forecasts. And so, you know, I think it's sort of, it's great to have these sort of newfangled ways of, of getting opinion and and thinking about the future. But if you don't do that sort of traditional epidemiological surveillance, you know, you have a hard time. And so I think that, you know, it just says that we need to do surveillance pretty well.
0: Uh, I guess, yeah, it has the what shit in, shit out problem. That just if there's no actual base information yeah. collection <laughs> that they can rely on, then their forecast can't be that good. Exactly. It's interesting. I was... Yeah, that's exactly. I was following the the, the Metaculous predictions, which uh, were running from fairly early on. And I kept noticing they just always seem to be trending in one direction. It's like, I guess it like good forecasts should kind of go up and down roughly equally, or it should be hard to predict where they're going, but it seemed to just constantly be moving upwards, which made me wonder if there was something kind of broken about the algorithm that it was constantly trailing. It was like maybe using old forecasts or it could just be that people are very, oh, and maybe it was just a surprisingly large outcome, so we just kept learning more and more bad things. But did, did, did you find anything that there was like, it wasn't What's what's the term for this? It, it should be a martingale, which I guess means that it's like you can't predict whether it's gonna go up or down. Did you find that in your in your Right.
1: Markets? Yeah. So actually some of those questions we actually cross posted between us and metaculus. And you know, they, they were great in, you know, setting something up so we could compare at a later date. Yeah, I mean it's hard to write these questions because you have to sort of think, okay, what could the range of outcomes be? And sort of the outbreak was moving so quickly and we were finding, you know, a lot of bad things, more bad things happening. And so, you know, I, I think that it comes it comes down to the fact that one limitation of these platforms is being able to write a good question that all, the question requires a really good forecast just from the person who writes it. And so, you know, if, if it's re- very, very difficult to do that. And also the other thing is that when you actually score it at the end, you need to have a clear outcome, right? Because otherwise your forecasters are really upset that you maybe were, seemed like you were doing, making an ar- arbitrary choice or they're like, well, I am going to argue with actually this answer. And so you need sort of a clear piece of information about, you know, what the actual resolution is. And that depends on surveillance and the timing of the surveillance. And if you say like, how many of how many cases will be by X date, but the situation reports come comes out three days later, when you fall in the, you know, the crack between your two outcomes, then what do you do? So I mean, it's it's really hard to write the questions. Yeah,
0: that's interesting. Yeah, that's something Philip Tetlocker said when I, when I interviewed him that he thinks well, he'd almost like to spend less time thinking about good forecasting and more time thinking about good question asking. Right. Did, you, did you learn anything specific about how you can do this better, or is it just kind of a perpetual challenge that maybe the thing you really want to know you haven't got an objective outcome for, and you have to keep changing the question because the world keeps changing, and so the thing you want to know is like every week is different?
1: yeah, I mean that's true uh, it I think the question writing is the hardest part. The forecasting I think is pretty straightforward, but yeah, you know writing the question in a way that's not ambiguous, you know if you say how many counties will see cases of measles in this month, well. Did the person with measles drive through that county? Does that count? <laughs> was the person diagnosed in one county and then went back home to another county? How are we counting that? And so, you know, it's just we got better at it as we went along because we avoided some of these pitfalls that we experienced early in the in the project. But it was still, you know, incredibly difficult even till the end. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. It so when, when people I know have made bets against one another are predicting things that will happen very often. They've decided that there's no way – well, there's no objective way of deciding who will, ha- who will who will have won. So they just appoint someone who they both like to just decide who was quite closer <laughs> to the truth. Because I haven't seen that many of those bets resolved. So maybe they'll just end up bickering endlessly yeah. about whether the arbiter was yeah. fair.
1: Are we talking about a slap bet con- commissioner?
0: What, what's, what's that? <laughs>
1: A slap bet commissioner. Oh, it was from like How I Met Your Mother and they had a bet that the person who won got to slap oh. the other. And so they appointed a third party to determine the rules of how it would occur.
0: Okay. I guess it is kind of like that. I know, I guess Brian Kaplan is an economist who's made a lot of public bets with people predicting things. And actually I'm, I'm the I'm the arbiter for, for, for one of them, which I think is not, I think <laughs> it's not going to come due for another five years or something. So I think we may well, actually he keeps a spreadsheet. Otherwise there's no chance I'd remember that. But yeah, one thing I wonder is, Maybe these prediction platforms need to like have someone who everyone kind of respects, who consistently decides who was one, and builds up a track record of having decided in some reasonably fair way what the correct outcome was. And maybe even if they don't, even if people don't agree with, you know, every decision, they think the person overall is kind of reasonable, and so it's worth participating in it. Is that something you've considered doing? Having a person who has the, the reputation on the line of, of deciding correctly who yeah, who was right.
1: Yeah, I don't know who I'd get to volunteer for that. But I mean, that seems like a good solution. They would probably have to be pretty impervious yeah. to, uh, you know, the complaints that would come along and with the
0: job. Do you enjoy hundreds of people shouting at you on the internet? Then <laughs> we got the job for you.
1: <laughs> right, exactly.
0: Yeah, I guess it's a little bit like being a judge. Yeah. So What's, what's the next step with with this prediction platform? Are, are you satisfied that it's kind of useful and, and worth keeping around?
1: Well so for right now we're we're going into an analysis phase so we don't have any more open questions. We've sort of shuttled our forecasters off to Metaculus and you know forecasting on that platform. I think right now we sort of need to determine, you know, what actually was working, which questions were sort of the best and and provided the best outcomes and also we're looking into sort of the characteristics of the of the forecasters. One thing I'd like to do which I haven't had enough time to actually get going is to set up a interview project where we can interview people, you know, the people who did the best on the various different projects or various different rounds for the project and see sort of how they were making their decisions. I, I mean, I know that the Good Judgment Project did this and, you know, I, I think it would be interesting to see if there, was an, if there were any differences when it came to infectious disease forecasting.
0: Yeah. My feeling is that we could do a lot better on disease forecasting or at least like Public opinion formation about about where diseases are likely to go uh, than we've done, and that that would be really helpful. Uh, so you, you were saying earlier that, and, and I and I agree with this that it seems like in late January or early February we totally could have predicted more that what happened. Not not, not with any certainty, but we could have said what has happened is completely plausible. It's a very mainline thing. It wasn't like this came out of left field because I think the early stuff was like, well, the case fatality rate seems to be maybe around one percent once you adjust for some cases that we're not picking up. And it seems pretty, pretty contagious, seems like it's spreading pretty fast. We haven't really contained something that seems as contagious as this, certainly not very often. So I guess it'll spread around the world and kill somewhere around 1% of people who get it. In a sense, like nothing surprising has happened. And yet it took a month longer really than we should have to start accepting that and reacting to it. And so it seems like having a prediction platform that very clearly sounds the alarm saying, yes, this may well happen could help to get people to do something sooner next time.
1: Yes, I do think so. So for this platform, one of the things we were trying to do is just sort of test how accurate it was, right? Because we can't have people making decisions off of, you know, bad models or bad forecasts. So that was one thing we were doing. We found that for a number of different types of questions, yeah, you know, it did very well. I would always say though that, you know, these forecasting platforms, new technologies, or even, you know, traditional disease modeling should really be a decision support tool, but shouldn't sort of determine what your decision should be and that there are a lot of other things that go into that. And I don't like the idea of putting all your sort of, I guess I'll say eggs yeah. in one basket, right? <laughs> I I I I think that, you know, you always have to think about the information that's going into these technologies models whatever and then think about, you know, how is is that going to really bias Bias the result. So, all these things, I think, you know, you should have a lot of different inputs into your decision making. And, and I wouldn't recommend, you know, making a decision based off a forecasting platform or, all, or just one model or whatever. I think that, you know, we need to really think about the details and the ins and outs of all those things before we decide.
0: Yeah. One thing that's interesting is, maybe I should ask an economist about this more than a public health person, but the stock market is kind of a big prediction market about how the pandemic going to go. And the stock market seemed to get things really wrong as well. Like throughout February, it was pretty complacent about it, even though there was like billions of dollars on the line there. So it, I mean, it suggests that people getting it wrong was pretty widespread. It wasn't just a handful of politicians.
1: Yeah, I think the stock market, you know, I don't think that there was a lot of understanding of actual, what was actually happening with that disease. I don't know why, because you're right. There's there's a lot of money on the line. And it just seems like there wasn't a lot of thought. I think, you know, early on, my, my friend who was going on a Moody's webinar and, you know, they were saying that they were just going to have their their forecast be that there would be a million cases. And that was like, you know, we were at like half a million at the time. (laughs) And it was like, this doesn't make any sense at all. And so, you know, I think there was some sort of like, we don't want to be too pessimistic in the approach, which I think that was
0: wrong. Not not so smart. Yeah, (laughs) I guess maybe I've seen this happen a couple of times where the stock market just seems kind of blind to like real world events that require domain expertise to properly understand things that like stand outside the financial system it's not about predicting the federal reserve or something like that it's about predicting a disease which is like not really what financial analysts are know the most about and in those cases it seems to do fairly poorly i think because there'll be like 1% of people who are trading in financial markets who know enough about this and it really draws their attention and they start thinking about it but that 1% isn't really enough to move the market as a whole and so they end up making a whole bunch of money on that occasion from other people who aren't really paying attention or yeah, who don't understand what's going on. But I mean, I think my, my is as an economist is kind of to trust the financial markets to be like, oh, the stock market really is a useful indication. But I think sometimes on questions that are outside the expertise of stock traders, it really doesn't tell you nearly as much as you would expect.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm no I'm no financial expert, but I think that that's exactly right. Yeah.
0: What else is uh, CHS trying to do to address the pandemic? You got the uh, prediction market thing, you're writing a whole lot of reports. Is, is there other things going on that's worth people knowing about?
1: Oh man, there are so many things going on. You know, there are reports coming out almost every day on different things, trying to help policymakers make decisions about the future, plan a, you know, sustainable and thoughtful way back, probably not to normality, but to something that's more sustainable. So I There's a ton of work going on. You know, I think we're also, when we have a moment to breathe, we'll be trying to do more on, you know, this is a policy window in which we need to sort of think, okay, what really should we be doing to get ready for next time? Because there will be a next time. This is not like a one-time event, right? This is actually, you know, in many ways, this is less than the pandemic that I imagined we were preparing for. And so we have shown that even at this level, we're not ready. And so it shows us there's a lot of work to be done. And so I think that that's the next stage, you know. But right now, I think us and and everyone else sort of just kind of reacting to what's happening with right now and how to, you know, think about the more immediate future. But, you know, soon we will be thinking about, you know, the next pandemic or the next bioterrorism event that, you know, we need to start getting ready for. Yeah.
0: Do you worry that it might be important to focus on kind of the next pandemic or preparing for the bigger picture now while people are really excited? Because you can imagine maybe we'll come up with a solution for this specific virus at some point in the next year or two, and then people will just like not be that interested in spending billions of dollars to actually prepare us for, you know, more generic antivirals and more generic vaccine platforms that will be able to deal with the next thing rather than just the disaster that we have going on, on right now.
1: Right. That's a fair criticism of the way that the United States has responded to biological events in the past. You know, it's a cycle of panic and neglect, right? You panic and you respond and try to prepare yourself for the last pandemic or the last disease. And you don't actually, you know, think about what the next one could be or the most likely one could be or the or the worst case scenario. And so, you know, I do think that there needs to be a change in thinking. If that, you know, will this disease change that thinking? I don't know. I hope it does. But the past hasn't been an indicator that we, you know, we learn from these mistakes. Yeah.
0: It's so not only the US. I mean, I think Australia and the UK both only had influenza pandemic plans, which meant that they made a bunch of mistakes because they were all of their planning was based around influenza as a virus and, and not around a, you know, what 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 would SARS 2.0 be like?
1: Oh, right. And and the thing is, is that flu is probably the most tractable of the diseases because we actually have a vaccine and a large scale manufacturing sort of industry that's ready to go. You know, when it comes to like if you have a vaccine that's ready to go and it's not flu vaccine. An ability to manufacture that vaccine at a scale that actually helps, you know, mod- like protect the, the world seems fairly impossible right now. And so flu seems to be the thing that we're most likely to be able to handle.
0: Yeah. I wonder whether some people, it, it's, it's perverse, but I wonder whether like now is a moment that some people who are currently focusing on COVID-19 should be putting together spending proposals for stuff that will help with the next pandemic before like we solve this and before people start to lose interest. So maybe is a time yeah. to be saying we should be spending billions on like generic virus production platforms and getting just like tons of stuff through the budget <laughs> ASAP.
1: <laughs> right, right. Uh, I mean, I've been thinking about that with Michael Montague, but, you know, it's still, it's just this response is so overwhelming. You know, I'd like to have those things ready to go when people have a chance to breathe, but we're, you know, we're not quite there yet. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it seems like a slightly crazy moment to be thinking about a pandemic 10 years from now. But yeah, a listener wrote in with a question about how receptive people in the US government have been to a proposal in a CHS report to uh, spend about three and a half billion dollars hiring 100,000 contact tracers, which seems like it would be a bargain, potentially, because then you could actually get get right. the rest of the economy. I mean, it sounds like a lot of money. And maybe maybe <laughs> right. the questioner was thinking, maybe they're going to say, oh, this is too expensive. But of course, it could save a trillion dollars. <laughs> I'm curious to know like have people realize the, the logic there.
1: Yeah, well, three point five billion dollars seems like budget dust at this yeah, point, right? Exactly. So there has been, you know, some uptake and a lot of and and interest in that proposal. Crystal Watson led that report, and I think there has been a lot of interest. And I think also, you know, if we're not able to move technology forward in a way that you know gets us a vaccine, gets us a countermeasure, gets us, uh, you know, whatever. Things that we need the serology that you know the testing at at you know how many, however million tests we need per week if we can't get to that level I think contact tracing may be one of the most tractable things that can be done that you know if we're spending a lot of money or we're losing a lot of money it makes sense to spend money on contact tracers we have plenty of people who are out of work who can do this and that you know tracking down who might be exposed and who needs to stay inside for a couple of weeks, I think may be the key to making it so that we can all sort of get out of our houses.
0: Yeah. If you, I guess if you think about it, even if 1% of the entire workforce is just doing contact tracing, that's like a lot more efficient than having everyone. Yeah. People not be able to work at all. Right. I guess that the, maybe the challenge there is, well, people could be irrational and not want to spend the money, but the challenge might be how do you scale up enough people train them to do something that might be a little bit tricky and a little bit fiddly and give them all the equipment, like given that we're trying to do this within months.
1: Yeah. I mean, people are going to have to be trained. They're going to have to be smart. They're going to have to, you know, be thoughtful about the way that they go about this. You can't just have someone randomly sort of try to do it. And so that's that is the trick to get people trained up. But I think, you know, that's not as hard as all these other things that we've been sort of thinking about it. And it's not as hard as having everyone be out of work. So let's just do it.
0: One thing you read in the notes here is it's important to consider COVID-19 from a big picture perspective and deaths are not the only health impact of importance. What, what, What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so one thing that I've been worried about in this response and you know it seems like when we think about models of covid deaths and we think about what we're doing to stay inside to prevent covid deaths, you know, from a public health perspective, covid deaths aren't the only deaths that occur in the US. They're not the only public health problem that we're going to have. And so I think, you know, I'm worried also, you know, not only about having, you know, I'm worried about covid deaths, but I'm also worried about, you know, all these cancer surgeries that aren't happening because we don't have elective surgeries, that, you know, that biopsy that didn't happen, you know, someone who should have gone to the hospital for a stroke but wasn't, you know, didn't feel like they should, all these things, you know, growing obesity, you know, I do think that, you know, these problems that are coming out of, you know, the measures that we are taking to prevent the spread of the transmission of COVID, I worry about them, you know, plenty of people die from being poor, you know, I worry about suicides. I think that these things, you know, we need to think of this from a big picture perspective and not just do everything we can just to prevent COVID
0: deaths. Yeah. I've heard from smart people, I guess some economists, some, I guess, uh, where are they from? <laughs> so it's smart, smart amateurs who kind of think about this intuitively and like, well, this fraction, this number of people will die from COVID-19, but won't like even more people potentially die from the response, as you're saying, from like, people not doing exercise and people losing their jobs and becoming depressed or or just being poorer in the long term because the economy has been so messed with. Has CHS tried to run any numbers on like, is it possible that we're going to worsen people's health overall if we have to keep running these lockdowns for for a very long time?
1: We haven't run anything like that. You know, I think that this is sort of uh, an idea that's sort of just sort of percolating through the public health community now. And so, you know, COVID was a big threat and certainly many people are dying every day from COVID. So I don't want to, I don't want to minimize that, but I do think you know I just want to say, hey, we gotta we gotta think big picture here, and we also have to think about you know more than just COVID yeah. when it comes to public health in the U.S. or in the world.
0: Completely, yeah. Initially, I, I was very supportive of the stay-at-home orders, and I think that they probably were, were the right call at the time. But there maybe it does come a point where a country, if they look at how how their preparations are going for the time after that, and just generally their their state capacity, and they think realistically, we're not going to have the testing capacity or the tracing capacity soon enough, or we're just not going to be able to do the follow through to, to control the disease after the lockdown period, that you might have to accept that you are like a lot, you are going to end up with the herd immunity strategy, because the alternative is to lock down the country for 12 months, 18 months, it's just like, so impractical. And, and the damage of doing that is just just gets too high. Where there'll be other countries where they do have the capacity to, to keep the disease under control without a lockdown, and they can pursue that other that alternative approach. But it does just, I guess, if I was thinking about herd immunity strategy and the immense damage that that would do versus stay-at-home orders on and off for 12 or 18 months, it becomes pretty questionable whether that's worth it in my mind.
1: I think that this is a debate that's worth having in the public health and larger community. You know, I don't feel qualified to to make that call on on what's worth it versus not. <laughs> but I do, I do think, though, that, you know, there might be a middle ground between lockdown and full-on, like, you know, National Chickenpox Party, right? I think that people, you know, if we can encourage people to understand how to reduce their risks, you know, we that may be, you know, incredibly helpful. And having people reduce their mixing, reduce their contacts to a point that, that, you know, we might be able to have the economy running at, you know, some you know percent of normal and be able to control the disease. I don't really know, you know, how possible that is. I think we're going to have to do a little bit of experimentation to see, maybe go back and forth. I think also asking people to stay home is different than, you know, a lockdown which is very coercive. You know, in Maryland, I don't, you know, we had sort of these requests to stay at home, we were working from home, we weren't mixing, we were not having big groups and then there was the lockdown order or the shelter in place order or whatever. And to me, it didn't really make a measurable difference other than I felt really trapped in my house. Um, And I think that psychological difference is actually really important.
0: Yeah, you've mentioned that a few times that you think it's one thing for people to stay at home voluntarily versus being told to or being forced to. Is that because people object to it more like or just makes them feel worse? Or is it that a kind of the, the coercive part of it is like a moral kind of in itself forcing people to do things against their will? Or maybe that it saps public confidence in, in the government uh, over time versus something that they're choosing to do because they just think it's good?
1: I think it comes from my faith in people and that I think that people are reasonable and that, you know, they, they, you know, if you give them enough information about risks, they can make thoughtful choices that, you know, that still correspond to, you know, the needs in their lives. And so some people may take more risk because they they have to. But I will admit that that's kind of a rosy picture of what, you know, of other people and, and other people may not have that faith. And so that may be, that might be wrong. And I think, you know, that, that's certainly possible that a lockdown order is necessary. Otherwise people make bad choices. But I, I would like to have more faith in people than that. Because otherwise, I mean, that's, you know, the lockdown orders aren't going to be something we can do for 18 months. And we're not going to have a vaccine. And we're not going to have the testing that we need. So at the end of the day, we are going to have to trust people to do the right thing. So, you know, we got to communicate and make it so that that can happen.
0: Has the response kind of affected your views on what policies are necessary or should be prioritized for, for next time?
1: You know, the response has the fact that stay at home orders are actually possible in the U.S. and and seem to work. is certainly, I, you know, I had not really had a lot of faith in that before. And I I feel like I've been surprised. But, you know, I don't want stay at home orders to be the way we deal with <laughs> pandemics in the future, right? Like, great, it worked, but I don't want to do this again. And so, you know, I think that it has shown us that we need to probably prioritize some other responses. You know, vaccine development, countermeasure development, increasing the capacity of our healthcare system. You know, right now, because in the U.S., the healthcare system is, you know, a, sort of a either a profit or nonprofit, but you know, very slim margin kind of operation. You know, it's hard to have that extra capacity that's really necessary for, you know, something like this. And so that's really critical. You know, also, you know, PPE. I, I mean, I know that people, people, people were storing this stuff up. How do we run out?
0: It's it's crazy. It's crazy. Thing, like,
1: yeah. And the swabs, you know, like that we've run out of swabs to do the tests in many places. I just, it's shocking to me. And so, I, you know, I guess maybe other people wouldn't be shocked by that I and mean, people who really look at it in more in depth. But how come we didn't think that we should have the capacity for that? I, I think that that's one thing, you know, that at least one lesson coming out of this, that that we should have we should have these stockpiles and that it's really valuable to have them and that, you know, coming out of this, you know, if you end up with an extra amount of PPE, maybe you should save it and not try to, you know, spend it down.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the cost of stockpiling PPE is not that high. I mean, if you rotate it through and you just end up having a bunch sitting there in storage warehouses so that doesn't break down. It seems like it would be a bargain. I mean, right. well, okay, an idea that I've heard is that we need to legalize, and I, I do actually think this myself, that we need to legalize price gouging during emergencies, because then people in the, like, I don't know that I trust the government to actually stockpile enough PPE for next time. And we need people in the private sector to potentially stockpile this stuff and then sell it at 10 or 100 times the normal price during disasters. So, so that someone else, someone would else will do it if our leaders don't have the foresight to do it themselves.
1: There certainly needs to be incentives. I, I'm not going to I'm not going to go there, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but uh, uh, I, I will say, you know, that Taiwan has a system where they have a stockpile and then they move things out of the stockpile into, you know, use and then put new things back in the stockpile. So it's always, you know, it doesn't expire. It's, like it's, it's ready to go. I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah, you just have it, you know, on hand. And I think that that's a really reasonable way to go about things. Yeah.
0: Fingers crossed! I think we'll see uh, wearing of surgical masks just by the general public be super normalised, which will hopefully then lead to a big increase in our total ability to manufacture PPE. So that during a disaster, we'll be out we'll, we'll, we'll just naturally be producing several times as much as we were before, and then we can prioritise healthcare workers during those times. Uh, and, so, and maybe people have like stored up a little bit in, in their own houses, so there'll be like some natural response, uh, even if the government doesn't get smarter yeah. about it. But
1: I mean, yeah, I think at this point, masks, you know, getting. You know, cloth mask right now, and then when we have enough for everyone else, you know, it seems like having masks is, is valuable for source control. I still don't think that having masks protects you that much, but it could, you know, potentially do something in reducing, you know, spread from people who are sick. Although I think if you're sick, you should just stay home. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, if you're at super high risk, you should also just stay home. Don't wear a mask to try to, you know,
0: pretend that that's gonna think that you're save you.
1: yeah, pretend that's gonna help you, yeah. yeah.
0: How do you think the buyer risk community is going to be different, if at all, after after this? Uh, do, do you think that people will kind of take it more seriously in a, on a persistent basis?
1: I mean, well, so the buyer risk community was taking it seriously.
0: Oh, and I was thinking, will other people <laughs> take the buyer risk community seriously?
1: <laughs> oh, OK, yeah. I mean, I hope so. You know, it's strange to have people who don't do this as, you know, like for the past 10 years really interested in this work. And so I hope that there is does continue to be an interest and, and, you know, also political interest in. moving these issues forward. I do worry that it sort of becomes just sort of commonplace and that people don't, you know, are just feel all too familiar with it. But I think, you know, there are opportunities here for the virus community to have a greater say in things. And, you know, I think also this is sort of brought up, and this is a little bit different question than you've asked, but you know evidence that you know this type of disease or or you know something similar causes this much disruption certainly should make people aware that there's a risk for people getting ideas from this and trying to do bad things
0: yeah you mentioned face masks is there anything that people in the general public should not do if they want to protect themselves or, or help with the crisis are there any mistakes that people are making
1: sometimes wearing a face mask can make you touch your you know, your eyes or your nose or, you know, dig under your face mask more. I mean, I don't, I, I'm not entirely sure what touching like your cheek really makes a difference for, you know, I'm not absorbing the virus from my, in my, through my cheek. But, you know, I think, you know, when the air is coming up out of your mask into your eyes, like, you you know, makes your eyes itch. So, you know, we shouldn't, you know, be touching our eyes, you know, even though we're wearing a mask. And I, I mean, I do worry, like I said before, that people will feel kind of like, they can do riskier things wearing a mask. I had, you know, people are like, well, I'll just go, I'll wear a mask when I go see my grandkids. And, you know, I'm an older older person. Well, seems like a bad idea. Maybe you just shouldn't go see your grandkids and wait, you know, for a little while until we are have a better handle on, you know, making sure that you're safe.
0: Yeah, on balance, I, pro- I probably am in favor of face masks. But it, yeah, this risk compensation thing does seem like it could eat away a lot of the benefits. If people decide, oh, now I'm going to go out a whole bunch more because the mask doesn't that, it makes me feel a lot safer to be wearing a mask.
1: Right. This is a role for risk communication. You know, I don't want to say that people automatically do this risk compensation, but I think this is a role for communicating with people so they understand actually what they're doing and and why they're wearing a mask. They're wearing a mask to protect other people. You know, I think that that's that's a critical component there to just have people understand what's going on.
0: Yeah. Are there any other lessons that we can learn from COVID-19 that might help us with future pandemics?
1: Mm, There's so many
0: so many <laughs> <laughs> I start
1: to really I start to really parse Good them up. out. I mean it, it's clear that we have a lot of work to do. It's clear that you know we need to be able to come to some consensus on some of these measures we're using to protect ourselves and others that the debate that was happening in public over masks probably didn't help. And, you know, I mean, I was part of that debate early on. I really didn't think that they were that helpful because, you know, I was thinking of them as a way to protect yourself. But then when we think about asymptomatic transmission and the fact, you know, that someone might be out and about and have the disease and not know it and still be able to spread it, that, you know, changed things. Probably my own messaging on that could have been improved by saying we might learn more but it might be different. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I,
0: yeah. so I should
1: take my own advice. That there. One, um, yeah, that seems yeah. like it was a little bit
0: of a, a little bit of a fiasco. I guess was it? Maybe the community was, oh, like the public health community was a little bit too confident about the anti, or they wanted to give a simple message and they thought that that was the right message. But then it it meant that there wasn't a lot of flexibility about changing it later on. If evidence came in, that was different. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The other lessons, I think that, you know, I've already talked about them a little bit, but that you know, testing and understanding what, what's going on with the epi curve are really critical, like taking these guesses based and having that, you know, the information that's coming in be so biased by your testing protocols and also having those testing protocols be different everywhere. So you can't even compare, you know, different sets of data to each other, just really problematic. You know, it's clear we need to have serology testing much earlier. And so, you know, I, I think that, you know, this is, this is something that really needs needs some work.
0: Yeah. One thing I've learned is, I suppose maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic about our ability to respond to a very deadly new pathogen. Like if it was killing 10% of people, and it seems like we really would potentially just do a full lockdown very early, which would buy us mm-hmm. some time, which I hadn't really realized that would be willing to go quite as far as we have gone in, in some ways. On the other hand, I'm. it seems like any new d- outbreak that even one that's not that deadly just imposes this enormous economic disruption more than I would have guessed. I would have thought, oh, well, something that kills half a percent of people who get it? Probably it's not going to cost tens of trillions of dollars to to deal with that, but it but it has I guess because we're choosing to do this big response, which might help, but it means that it's like the financial cost is enormous. I guess it seems like it might change the cost benefit analysis for preparing for this kind of thing going forward because it's so easy to quantify financially and in terms of tax revenue the the cost of not being Great. prepared.
1: Right. If the cost of not being prepared is trillions of dollars to our economy, maybe yeah. we should spend that money <laughs> on being prepared.
0: Yeah. Maybe we should put some masks in a cave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that will get through the politicians in the future. More. What's what's another example? I suppose that the UK had one of the what the one of the, some of the best modeling for dealing with pandemics that, that was out there, but I guess it hadn't been funded enough, or, or they hadn't thought ahead enough to to make it very flexible and have it be checked and kind of open source, so that you could very quickly get lots of people trying to do produce different models of, of the new disease and cross-checking it and things like that. In a sense, the UK deserves credit because it had sufficiently good disease modeling that other countries were looking to it for advice. But, but even there, we, we hadn't prepared ahead to think, wow, we're going to need these results really quickly like within weeks. And it could be something that's quite unexpected. I really hope that that kind of stuff gets more funding.
1: So yeah, it's clear that having good models early on is really critical. And, you know, I, I will say that, you know, it's also really important to have, you know, we talked about this already, to have good information to go into those models, right? And understanding, you know, what biases might be happening because of the different ways that you're testing. So I think that's important. Now, it it's clear that policymakers are looking to modelers to help them make decisions. And so, you know, that's not going to change. But, you know, having good models up front is really important, as long as we understand that they're just models, and that we're going to, you know, they're going to help us make decisions. But they're not, I would not say that they're a perfect prediction of the future and would, you know, would always caution against that.
0: Yeah, it's something that occurred to me a couple of weeks later, maybe than it should have, is that in a situation like this, where you're trying to make trying to respond very quickly on the fly to something that's a bit unpredictable and very uncertain. Relying on kind of sophisticated models can potentially lead you astray relative to following heuristics, like let's just do what other people have done or let's do what's worked in the past or let's do the thing that preserves option value. I guess this is a thing that I think you find in decision-making literature, that the more complex and uncertain and... Volatile a situation, the less you want to rely on any kind of very specific, sophisticated model to to guide your decision making. Do you think there's something to that? Yeah.
1: Decision making, you know, scientists at my specialty, Crystal Watson at our center is the person who really does a lot of that. But I do think there are other ways to make decisions. And I think that we should sort of try to get all the the information together. I guess, you know, one thing that really has happened in this outbreak is that China experienced the outbreak first. And so for the most part, everyone has tried to copy China. And I was worried that we wouldn't be able to do it because we don't have the same testing capacity, the same ability to contact trace and sort of enforce people staying inside. Now, certainly we've seen a lot of people stay inside, but, you know, China was able to move on to, you know, the next phase. And so I think when you put these things in place, you need to be able to think ahead to say, and then what? And, you know, OK, so we, we did lockdowns. Now, what are we going to do? How do we get out of it? And so I think that that's sort of a critical piece of sort of making decisions about outbreak response is that, you know, you're responding to the threat of the day, but you also think ahead about, you know, what are our next steps? And so we need to be able to have those things that help us take those next steps, which we don't yet.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's push on from COVID-19 specifically and talk about our report that you contributed to from back in 2018, which was called uh, 15 Emerging Technologies with Potential to Reduce Global Catastrophic Biological Risks. What are some of the technologies in there that you thought were particularly exciting, or maybe yeah, I'd just like to describe what what, what what the main message of that report was first, perhaps.
1: Yeah. So this report was, you know, a way of thinking about GCBRs or global catastrophic biological risks in a more positive way, right? So when you think about these risks, a lot of times the the writing and the thinking is very dark, right? It's like so many millions of people could die and, you know, it's going to be the end of the world and here's the disease that's going to kill you, blah, 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 blah. And so, you know, here we were trying to say, okay, what's the other side? What's the positive side of this? How could we actually meet this threat in ways with technologies that are really going to change the game? And so we came up with 15 different technologies, and they came in a different sort of different phases of a, an outbreak, you know, from disease detection to diagnostics, and then how we're doing, how we're manufacturing countermeasures, distributing them, and then, you know, how we're actually caring for people. And so they, we had a, you know, a range of different technologies in these different areas and, you know, some are probably closer to reality than than others. The ones that I think I'm most excited about, you know, in the context of this experience with this pandemic is really the easy to use ventilators and microfluidic devices because they can sort of solve our problems or at least help solve those problems with the rapid and expansive testing. And then also, you know, that hospital capacity capacity. If hospital capacity is the thing that we're really worried about not having enough of, then one of those steps is having enough ventilators and having them be something that you don't have to have specialized training to actually operate.
0: Right, right. Yeah. I was going to say, I was surprised you said ventilators because it seems like a lot of people think that the bottleneck is going to be people to operate them. where It seems like you need really experienced nurses and yeah, medical professionals to do that. But I guess, so, so you think it's possible to produce ventilators that an amateur might be able to operate to a sufficiently good degree?
1: Well, that's the vision. I mean, I don't think that we're there yet. You do need to know how to operate these, the ones that we have right now. So it's not just producing more ventilators like we have, but producing ventilators that, you know, a range of people can, can operate because, you know, the bottleneck is the staff, like you, there is a number of staff members, like you said.
0: Yeah. I've heard some, some people claiming that by the time people get onto ventilators, most people die even if they get ventilation. And so maybe like ventilators aren't as helpful as, as we think and we should be trying other, other treatment options. Yeah, have you looked into that one at all?
1: So people mentioned it actually in our call this morning that in some hospital systems it seems like a large number of people on ventilators end up dying. But that isn't reflective of, you know, what's happening all across the country. And so in other places, you know, it seems like they are able to get people off the ventilators. But, you know, having the capacity, the ICU capacity to to take care of these people and ventilators are are part of that story, you know, that's that's why we're doing this social distancing, right? We're, we're doing it so that we don't overwhelm hospital capacity. And so if you know, we're trying to manage one side of the equation, perhaps we should try to change the other side of the equation.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned microfluidic devices. What are they and why might they make a really big difference?
1: A one type of microfluidic device would be um, paper-based testing that it's just a way to Do rapid tests that don't have to go to a lab and that you can sort of get the results pretty quickly. And so I think this could really change the game, right? Because right now, if it takes a couple of days to get your test and then it takes a couple of days to get your test back, and by the time you get that and you start doing contact tracing, you know, you're already in big trouble. It's hard to really make a change, you know, in the Epi curve that way. But if you can say, I'm starting to feel sick, and then you take a test and you know immediately. You know, you can tell everyone you've been in contact in the last, you know, couple of days that, hey, you know, you should watch for symptoms or take your own test. I think that's, you know, that's a game changer.
0: Yeah. Is is that one for COVID-19 specifically or is it something that you think could make a really big difference just with all future pandemics if we can make that standard? I
1: think I think all future pandemics. I think we've seen that the diagnostics and the understanding of what's going on with the disease, reducing that uncertainty is really critical for making good decisions. And so the part of much of that comes from having good and rapid tests.
0: What's stopping us from having these tests now, the microfluidic tests that don't need to go to a lab?
1: This is getting actually outside of my area of expertise, so I'd refer you to the serology report that just came out from the center. Just a couple of that. You know, yeah, I think that that's probably a good place for people to go look and see some sort of good testing that's that's coming out. I don't really know exactly what the problem is, but you know, I don't think that we're there yet.
0: Yeah. Are there any technologies from that, from that 15 emerging technologies to reduce a GCBR report that you're interested in? Or I think it would be fun to describe to the audience. One that I was particularly interested in was the idea of vaccines that spread virally. So you could produce, oh, yeah. <laughs> you're saying that, has that one also drawn interest from others? <laughs>
1: Yeah. So the self-spreading vaccine, yeah. ethically fraught, but really interesting, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly.
0: Um, oh, I could just imagine the reaction from some people on Twitter. <laughs> it seems like, how are, you, how are you going to get that one past the institutional review board? <laughs> right.
1: You certainly can't consent someone who's getting getting a vaccine this way. So I think that the original idea was that it would be, you know, you could, you could vaccinate animal populations this way pretty easily if you had an animal disease. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that I don't know how to get over those those ethical hurdles as far as doing it in people. It might be a uh, you know break glass kind of thing, in case of emergency. But you know that was just an idea that we thought was really interesting that you know you you can give a vaccine to one person and that it's you know you don't have to deal so much with the distribution problem. But like I said, huge ethical problems there. So, you know, and and I don't know how you get that through the the regulatory process either, but valuable enough of an idea just to at least bring up.
0: Completely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating one. I I suppose the idea is, what if you could take the COVID-19 virus and then change it such that it doesn't actually do people any health damage or like very rarely does, and then get that one out there, then that's going to spread around and just inoculate people against it. And is is it that much worse? I mean, in the alternative world, they're going to get this other disease probably. So... I suppose, yeah, it is ethically fraught, but there is there's there's also kind of a common sense way in which this doesn't doesn't this make a whole lot of sense.
1: Yeah, so that's why it's there, but you know, obviously with the caveat of you don't
0: think we're going to roll that problems. (laughs) we're not going to roll that one out next year. Yeah, are there any other ones that are that are exciting and worth explaining?
1: You know, one thing that I was working on for this report was the robotics and telehealth. And so, you know, I do think if you're worried about a disease that's like really taking down your frontline practitioners, if you have the ability to sort of see people through telehealth and use, and we were already actually even doing this, but, you know, if you have people also in hospitals and some of that treatment can happen through robotics. You know, I think that you can reduce exposure to healthcare personnel that you really need to have on the front lines. And so, you know, that might be something that could really help in a pandemic. I mean, all of these are something that could really help in a pandemic, but that was something that really, you know, struck me as as you know, you could even do home based care. Yeah. In that case.
0: And the barriers to that one might not be so so serious. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I guess it seems Maybe I've moved towards thinking that diagnostics is especially important, that if we had a generic platform that could diagnose people, like kind of the nanopore sequencing stuff, if we I mean, DNA sequencing has become so much cheaper so quickly that you could imagine that we could end up with DNA sequences that are distributed just all over the place, at least in developed countries, that can very quickly figure out whether someone has the telltale DNA or RNA for a particular virus and could massively scale up our ability to diagnose people with new conditions, and then we just won't find ourselves in this horrible situation that we've been in, where it takes months to be able to to get to a level where we can diagnose even you know ten percent of the people who have this illness, and that could potentially make a huge difference to early control.
1: Oh yeah, huge difference, and and I think you know it also tells you a lot more about the severity of the disease. I mean, we think this is very severe, but we don't really have a clear idea on the denominator of you know our cases and deaths, right? So, you know, if we had better diagnostics and we were able to roll them out to everyone who we wanted to test, we could make decisions with a lot more certainty and a lot more sort of faith that that was the right thing to do.
0: Yeah. And when you don't have such a bottleneck on the access to tests, then it's going to be a lot easier to very early get up these surveillance ones or these like randomly sampled ones. We're just, well, let's just test for a random thousand people coming in. And then you can kind of figure out, yeah, what is actually the infection fatality rate here much earlier and you know, is it worth shutting down the economy to stop this? Whereas kinda we we had to do that a little bit blind.
1: Right. I mean, I think it was using a public health precautionary principle that we don't know how bad it's gonna be. We need to do this to sort of take stock. You know, I wish that the time that we spent while we were been doing this, we kind of could come out of the other end knowing, you know, what what actually is the case i think we're still kind of in the dark and now making you know the next set of choices in the dark so diagnostics would really help us figure that out
0: yeah yeah. Another interesting idea in the in the report was it seemed like the idea of vaccinating people basically using a Band-Aid because currently it's kind of this bottleneck on vaccination campaigns, which is very often you need some kind of like at least some some level of medical training to inject people with a vaccine. Uh, whereas what if you could just mail out every year someone the flu vaccine in a, in a Band-Aid and everyone gets it in the mail and just like sticks it on themselves and, and that's done. And it sounded like this isn't so far off being being possible. And that could really increase our ability to vaccinate people very quickly in an emergency.
1: Right. I think that was one that seemed closer than others. And you're right. Like, you know, what if you could just send these vaccines to everyone? The distribution problem and the getting it actually into people would be solved. And so, you know, you'd still have to come up with the vaccine and, you know, do safety tests and and manufacture it, whatever. But this solves a huge bottleneck when it comes to getting vaccines into people. And so I, you know, that was one that is pretty exciting as well.
0: Yeah. One that struck me as a little bit odd was using drones to kind of collect samples from out in the environment. And I guess by environment, it didn't mean kind of city streets. I think it meant like actually out in rural areas, or perhaps I misunderstood what the idea was.
1: Yeah, so actually, this is actually something that's kind of happening already. You're using drones to catch mosquitoes, to, and then you bring them, you test them for you know different diseases. And so you could kind of do something like that, or you could you know use other ways to sort of collect you know information on what's happening out there and sort of pull those in, so you don't have to have someone like drive out, take a sample, do whatever, catch a mosquito. And so that's that's kind of part of that idea.
0: Okay, yeah, that's okay. I, I kind of missed that it was catching mosquitoes. I suppose you can catch. Like, well, I don't like- think.
1: Yeah, it wouldn't always be catching it mosquitoes. Maybe back. you would take water samples or whatever if you're worried about what's happening in the ocean,
0: yeah. that kind of thing. That makes sense. And I guess, yeah, other proposals included ways of constructing molecules, which I suppose is important for making vaccines and other, and other treatments. So in order, to, in order to be able to scale up treatments more quickly. One thing I wondered is why can't we just get bacteria to make the antigens that match up the viruses that we want people to develop? resistance against or develop an immune response to maybe this is a I should talk to a to a biologist about this one.
1: <laughs> yeah this isn't really my area yeah. <laughs> that to collect this information for the report and that yeah. was something that we saw as possible so you could actually like maybe you could combine you know synthetic biology and 3d printing and you could actually like you know have the bacteria create the precursors that you need for the drugs that then you could Print basically, so you know this is sort of out there stuff. But yeah, I think synthetic biology is actually something that could really be helpful here as well.
0: Yeah, I suppose it's kind of creating increasing the risk in some ways, but then there's all these opportunities for it to help as well, and we just got to make sure that we take those as well. Yeah, I wasn't surprised when you said uh, that there is this concern that with global catastrophic biological risk, it's kind of all doom and gloom. And I've found that sometimes it's really hard, I think, to get people to click through to articles about that on our website because it just sounds so negative. Like, who wants to read about just like another thing that can go wrong horribly? And I'm just with this report, it was like, it was all very bright. It was like beautifully illustrated, very nicely designed. It was fun to read about. It's fun to read about these technologies in a way that it wouldn't be fun to read about millions of people dying necessarily. Right. So this, I guess this was by design to try to get people to be more positive and more hopeful about about this issue?
1: Yeah, and to sort of have people, you know, capture the imaginations of people who, you know, wanna think creatively about these issues, to invest in in new things that are, you know, interesting solutions that it might move us forward. You know, it's not just, you know, as a public health person, I certainly think capability on the ground is important, but, you know, investing in these technologies really, uh, you know, could be a huge opportunity. So we, w- we wanna think about opportunities as well as risks.
0: Yeah. Yeah, whoever illustrated it really deserves some, some credit. I'll, yeah, we'll worked, up, they were great. We'll stick up a link for, for people to have a read. I keep wanting to steal the little images from it. <laughs> <laughs> so according to your bio, you started at the Center for Health Security back in 2009. And I guess this this GCBR, or the Global Catastrophic Biological Risk thing, seems to really have become come into vogue the last couple of years. I suppose the, the ideas were around beforehand, but it's become a, a bigger deal, I think, in the health security space. How have you found that? Do you think that's going to be a big focus for you, for you going forward or, or for CHS?
1: So, you know, we do a lot of focus on global catastrophic biological risk. Um, Part of that's, you know, funding related. But, you know, I think this outbreak actually has shown us that, you know, there are steps before that that we need to sort of be able to, to do in order to respond to a global catastrophic biological risk. So when I came into the field, I mean, there was a lot about bioterrorism that we were working on and sort of... Things have sort of shifted. We opened the areas of things that we're working on to be more health security. So it's not just bio. You know, I was doing some nuclear consequence management for a while. That's a big problem, too, that people really don't feel like they can really take even the first step on. And so, you know, it's been it's been an interesting few years thinking about yeah. all these terrible things, I guess.
0: <laughs> is there any resistance from people who maybe think GCBRs, you know, they're a serious issue, but they're like not super likely, so we should keep focusing on the things that we were before GCBRs became more fashionable? I think that
1: there, there is that pushback. But I also think, you know, as we try to get a handle on GCBRs, I think that that helps us get a handle on these other outbreaks. And so I think that they're they're part of a spectrum of the same thing. And so, you know, it's really important to think about both. And I wouldn't, you know, discount one because of the other.
0: In that report, you point out that very often there's kind of some commercial applications for, for these technologies that, that we could develop. But they tend to maybe lag behind uh, where, where they could be because that'd be really useful to society. But there aren't like that many commercial applications. So who's really going to put in the, the effort to, to get them up to a big scale? Are there any options for addressing that 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 problem other than just, you know, getting more government science grants or grants for health security? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I feel like this is actually one area where, you know, I think the ingenuity and and the can-do attitude of the EA community really could have a lot of a lot of value thinking about how we move these technologies forward, how we can grow interest in them in a way that, you know, gets their everyday use sort of more valued. Because that's, you know, that's the key. If we can get if we can get things into everyday use, then they're easy to, to use in a pandemic. So I don't know. I think I guess I don't have the answers here, but I'm I think that this is an area that, you know, I'd love to see some creative thinking, the type that the EA community really does does so well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I actually know yeah, a few people involved in the effective activism community who have been looking at more commercial applications for diagnostics, trying to find some path, some commercial path from something that we're like almost being able to use to can, can we find a way to, to make this profitable to, to scale up so that it is available during a during a pandemic yeah I hope maybe I'll maybe be able to get one of them on the, on, on the show in the future to, to talk about their plans for that <laughs> or,
1: yeah, b- or that perhaps they exciting. want to keep
0: that, <laughs> perhaps they want to keep that under apps for there for their business <laughs> do you know any particularly good uh, resources about DCBRs that people should maybe go and read about that that aren't super widely known
1: well there's that original sort of definition paper for GCBRs that you know we we wrote as a center and actually it was really a great process in sort of coming to that definition. We, we had these big meetings together and sort of talked it through what we thought it really meant. And so you know I think that that's that's valuable but I mean you know, I think some of the work that's been published on Open Philanthropy's web pages is really valuable. I looked at the stuff that you guys published and I think it's great. So you know I think that there's a lot of good stuff out there.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. I guess I haven't left a lot of time to talk about career advice in GCBS, because we've done some episodes on it before. We've talked to Tom Inglesby and we'll probably have some more in future. But is there is there anything you'd like to highlight to people who've kind of been inspired by COVID-19 to, to think about a career working on global catastrophic biological risks, like places to go and work, people to, people to study with or things that they should keep in mind?
1: Yeah, I think you know, one piece of advice is don't be afraid to get in on the ground floor. You know, I I retired from professional sports and, and came to the center as an analyst. And, you know, I counted paragraphs for references. You know, sometimes you just have to slog through it. I and mean, once you've gained that experience, you, you move up. And so I think that's one thing to think about. You know, the other is to use your network to sort of make those connections. It's a it's a small world. It's hard to get into sometimes. I was lucky. I'll say my boyfriend at the time now husband, been uh, his roommate's dad knew Tom, Inglesby. Uh. And so connected me when yeah, I retired from swimming. He's like, "What are you going to do with your life?" And I I said, "I don't know, but I think this exercise called Dark Winter is really cool." And he was like, "Well, <laughs> I know who you should talk to." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so the rest is kind of history, but you know, I I came to work at the center and then, you know, I very quickly realized that I needed a terminal degree also. And so, you know, I was working at the center part-time while I was getting my PhD as well. So there there were a number of steps and and you know ladders to climb to get to move through the the biosecurity community.
0: Yeah, so it's a little bit chancy, your conversion from swimming to working on health security.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's what most yeah. of life is chance, right? That's
0: true, yeah. Are there lots of opportunities for people to work uh, to move from kind of conventional biosecurity into working on global catastrophic biological risks at this point do you think?
1: Mm, that's a tough question. I mean, I think global catastrophic biological risks are there's something that many people are are growing in their interest for. I think it really depends on where the funding is. It's hard to do work that's that's not funded, and so you know we're always trying to build a a grant proposal or a contract proposal, and and that kind of that kind of leads the way.
0: Yeah, I guess at eighty thousand hours, we've kind of been assuming that the number of jobs in biosecurity and pandemic control might multiply several fold in the next five or ten years, just because people will have this memory of COVID nineteen, or I guess it will still be going on for a while. Do you think that's right? Is it, or is it possible that we'll kind of forget about it or governments actually won't put forward the, the funding that currently they they suggested they might?
1: So I think that funding, you know, funding is required to grow jobs in this field. You know, there's a limited number right now. And I think government is going to be where the jobs are going to expand. You know, we do need more people working on this at the CDC. We need more capacity at the local public health. You know, I think that GCBRs are, you know, important and something that can be worked on at the local public health level, but I think that people really need to be able to be flexible and work on everything from, you know, the local outbreak to a GCBR and sort of have that flexibility of thinking and an approach to sort of grow the jobs out here. Because it's not that everyone's going to be working just on
0: GCBRs.
1: That would just flood the field. I, I think that would be tough, but I think it's clear that we need a lot more work sort of along that spectrum.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I suppose in the past, I thought a lot of the work that would be focused on global catastrophic biological risks could be quite different than other pandemic control. And Maybe there are some really important targeted things like regulation of gain of function research, where it's like, well, you probably wouldn't do that if you were just interested in pandemics in general. And maybe that is a very important issue for, for GCBR risk reduction. But I guess do you, do you think that, that for many people, it could just be like the way to reduce GCBRs is just to reduce transmission of diseases in general or to be able to respond to pandemics in general? Because, well, anything that reduces transmission of disease means that it's easier to get R below one in a disaster scenario, in a GCBR scenario?
1: Well, I think that, you know, like you said, there are definitely a number of things that are unique to a GCBR scenario, you know, like working on the Biological Weapons Convention, like, you know, that's, that's going to be more large scale pandemics, right? But I just think that for there to be a lot of jobs and a lot of people working in this field, there needs to be a range of things that they can work on. I mean, I work on a range of different things and, you know, it allows me to work on GCBRs, but also have a foot in sort of the practical applications of some of these solutions in, you know, in scenarios that, you know, people are going to have to put into their pandemic plans, whatever, like actually what's happening in practice. And so I think that flexibility is important. But, you know, that's not to say that there aren't things that are very specific to GCBRs, you know, that I, I don't want to be being confusing people here yeah, um, sure. that that's not the case.
0: Yeah, I guess that's true of the Biological Weapons Convention and anything to do with, I guess, like deliberate development of dangerous diseases for weapons purposes or something like that. That's very GCBR specific and I guess could could end up being very important or potentially not, depending on whether countries end up pursuing that. Right. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, GC- I mean, GCBS is kind of this niche within health security that we're especially excited about. But I suppose it's possible that there could be people who in the long term might want to work on GCBS, but they won't be able to get a job in that niche right away. And so just going into health security in general could be a good stepping stone to like potentially one day go, go and work on GCBRs if they think that's more effective. Does that sound right kind of even now when it's potentially a growth industry?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, there there are a lot of opportunities and hopefully there will be a lot of opportunities in the future in health security. And so, you know, Geez, just go get your feet wet. You know, it might not be exactly the perfect thing that that, you know, you're interested in 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 spending all your time on GCBRs, but grow your experience and, you know, then, you know, there are opportunities along the way that you can shift. But I don't think that there are many jobs right now that are just solely focused on GCBRs.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I I wrote an article a few weeks back called Good News About COVID-19, which was very popular because I guess maybe people were looking for some good, good news about the situation. Has there been any you know good news in your views, like stuff that really indicates that things might not be as bad as they as they look on the surface?
1: Yeah, so I think some of the serology studies that have started to come out recently might indicate that you know more people have gotten it gotten the disease and they had it, you know maybe it was circulating earlier and and not causing quite so much of a terrible disruption. I, I will admit that the sampling for those I'm not entirely sure about. And, you know, the, some of the statistical methods has, have been questioned, but, you know, it is possible that, you know, maybe, maybe more people have had it than we thought. You know, I think from a personal note, you know, my husband had flu negative pneumonia in mid-February and my son also had pneumonia a little bit before that. And so, you know, if it had been, if it's been circulating for longer, you know, in the community, you know, that could change a little bit of the dynamics of how we understand this disease.
0: Yeah, it's a funny situation when way more people have the illness than we think is the good news, but it does it does make sense because it means it's like it's a lot less dangerous than we, than we thought potentially. Yeah, yeah, I've been intrigued by those results. I keep seeing these studies popping up on Twitter, and there's such such conflicting results in different countries and using different methods and different kind of sampling sampling approaches. It's it's it's, a, it's an interesting mystery. Uh, it would be a fun research project to try to unravel why is there kind of not a consistent picture being painted of of how much this disease has has spread.
1: Well, I think one of the things is actually that you know the the spread of the disease is hyperlocal here and and actually around the world, and so. While you might have a certain level of, you know, infections across the country, that there may be differences in in what is happening actually at the local level in cities and towns, counties, whatever, that there may be a huge amount of variation actually across the country and so that and, and across the world. And so that may be why we have such different different results. But the other thing that also could be happening is a difference in sampling, and so we know that the, the disease severity is different across different age groups. And so, you know, if you have if you, studies that are showing a huge number of asymptomatic people may actually be, you know, I don't know about the age distribution there, but, you know, I, I suspect that you have more asymptomatic cases with a uh, younger sample.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there was, there was a study recently in New York where I think they were sampling all women who were coming in to give birth at hospitals at a time and they found that, was it 15% or something from memory had the condition? which is alarming. Although I suppose like New York, we know that it's been pretty widespread there. Uh, and I guess possibly pregnant women have been coming into hospital be- related to the pregnancy and perhaps they've been catching it catching it there or they've been forced to leave the house when other people have been in lockdown.
1: Yeah, so. <laughs> I mean, I guess a pregnant woman is forced to leave the house to go to her prenatal appointments. But at the same time, they you're really trying careful. to cocoon yourself. <laughs> and, you know, a, the average age of this population is is lower than, you know, the, the Diamond Princess group, you know?
0: Yeah, I guess the, yeah, with the arrival of the serology tests, it's been really interesting. They're very hard to interpret, as you are saying, because we don't know what the false positive rate is there. And so if you get, say, two, a result saying 2% of the population has this, and it's possible that the false positive rate is around 2%, and you really don't know <laughs> how to read that result. Right. And so hopefully right. we'll get some more clarity on that in coming weeks and months as we get bigger testing of these kits uh, with, with uh, known negatives.
1: Yeah, larger sample sizes and probably, you know, a way of sampling the population that that pulls in a little more variation or at least can differentiate by age group. I mean, these large, you know, having a large sort of number for asymptomatic cases or, serolo- you know, from the serology or whatever, isn't that helpful if we don't know the age distribution or we don't incorporate it into our understanding of the age distribution?
0: Yeah. All right, well, that's all good news. That maybe there's some signs that more people have it, and so not so many people are dying. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I, I would be really happy to find that out.
1: <laughs> right, exactly.
0: <laughs> I might be, I might be a little bit embarrassed because I've been skeptical of this theory on social media. So I might have to eat crow if that turns out to be oh, true.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I could. It could be completely wrong, you know. And I, so you know, that's my my possible. I'll yeah, call it my possible, possible. good news.
0: All right, we should probably uh, wrap up. I know you've got a busy, busy time trying to do a COVID, <laughs> COVID control. I'm kind of, as a final question, maybe curious to know how has COVID affected your life personally? Are, are you... At the C- are you guys at the CHS getting any sleep <laughs> or are you just kind of worked <laughs> off your feet? I'm not sure whether I mentioned earlier, but you were, yeah, you were responding at 4 a.m. to our planning document for this interview, which made me worry about <laughs> whether you were <laughs> getting any rest at all or whether you just like maybe can't even sleep because you're just thinking about work all the time.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think that I might be sleeping more than a lot of other people at the center. Um, but I was up in the middle of the night, you know, trying to work on the notes here for this episode you know, sometimes you just wake up and you, you're you like, I, I could lay in bed and waste another hour just laying here, or maybe I should just get up and do something. So that's, that's what was going on there. The workload has been really intense because, you know, it's COVID-19, but then trying to keep up with, you know, normal assistant professor activities. I ha- I'm teaching a class, I, you know, I have students who need help, you know, and my kids are at home <laughs> with me. <laughs> so, you
0: know, it, Doing, playing a, kindergarten as well. Yeah.
1: Right. I mean, I'm glad to have a job. I'm glad to be busy, and I'm glad to have a nice family and a good situation. But I will say that it has been incredibly intense. Fortunately, I have you know, my husband can can help you know with being also the teacher because they're doing you know, my son's doing online school. But he can't work a computer by himself because he's five. Um, and so it has been intense. But, you know, this family time has also been, you know, in, in many ways, really nice, you know, beyond the, you know, the frustrations of trying to get through a mountain of work with your kids just climbing all over you. My, my daughter, who's three, they both of them have become obsessed with David Bowie because they read this little book about him. And so they they want to listen to David Bowie's songs all the time. And my three-year-old is singing Life on Mars all the time. And she loves that line. It's like, I'm <laughs> um, eating up the wrong guy. And she just loves singing that. So I mean, there, there are moments where it is very funny to be you know around them a lot. I, I do want them to go back to school, yeah.
0: but um, you know,
1: <laughs> there, there are nice moments too.
0: Yeah, I guess it's like, there's the policy analyst side of, uh, do you want the schools to open? And then there's maybe the personal side as well where...
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's individual
0: considerations could come in. Well, yeah, thanks so much for working so hard to protect us all from COVID-19 and I guess future pan- pandemics as well. Yeah, to you and uh, and everyone at the Center for Health Security, I think the work you're doing is really impressive. My guest today has been Tara Kirksell. Thanks for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Tara.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. and And thanks for inviting me. This has been really great. I hope everyone has a good listen.
0: A reminder about the Effective Altruism Funds uh, website, which you can use to support the Center for Health Security, uh, among other organizations that you might be interested in helping out. Here's uh, four random book recommendations that you might like. Uh, I mostly listen to audiobooks, uh, and these are all available on Audible. Uh, the first is The Story of Human Language by John McWhorter, uh, which is a series of very entertaining uh, lectures about how languages actually originated and, and how they really work. Uh, McWhorter is uh, one of my favorite writers and uh, always fun in the, in the many interviews that he does. Second, there's Everybody Lies uh, by Seth Stevens-Davidowitz. The premise is uh, using our Google searches to learn things about us that we often won't readily admit in surveys, uh, like how racist we are or what pornography we enjoy. Uh, It's a good premise to open with, uh, but the book really makes the most of it, uh, drawing out some good insights into what people are really like. Third, there's uh, Climate Matters, Ethics in a Warming World by John Broome. Uh, It considers the moral philosophy of climate change and long-term impacts on the world uh, in general, uh, including an unusually informed uh, treatment of population ethics, actually. While Broom is an academic philosopher, I found this one uh, very engaging and easy to follow. Finally, uh, there's Bolivar, American Liberator, by Marie Arana. Uh, It's a really cracking book about how uh, Latin America achieved independence from Spain, uh, told through the story of Simon Bolivar, the general who led uh, a series of really brutal campaigns across the entire continent to free Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia and Panama uh, from colonial rule uh, over a period of decades. According to Wikipedia, uh, Believer fought uh, 472 battles, of which 79 were important ones. And during his campaigns, he rode on horseback 123,000 kilometers, uh, which is 10 times more than Hannibal, three times more than Napoleon, and twice as much as Alexander the Great. Not too shabby. All right, drop me an email if you end up reading uh, and enjoying any of those. The 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell, transcripts by Zachy Ulhack. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.